Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Good morning. Welcome to Sawcast number 33. This production of Sawcast is brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willink Productions and his staff and by Saw Chronicles. My name is John Stryker-Meyer. I'll be your host today. I'm joined by Chad, our technician, our parachute qualified specialist here. I want to start right off with the book. A voice drifted through the greenery of a handler talking to his dog. Then I heard the soothing sound that warm autumn breezes make over brown leaves. No breeze stirred the trees. I pictured dozens of enemy trouser legs brushing against the undergrowth. Two soldiers appeared out of the shrubs, and I heard heavy movement around us. Noi and Ken engaged them. Both went down. I heard a shout, and the sound of several men crashing through the brush. To my side, three NVA in mustard-colored uniforms rose and began to shoot at me. I returned fire, and two went down. I was out of ammunition, reached for a new magazine. The enemy had AK-47s with their 30-round magazines. While we men in recon still only had 20-round magazines, I had practiced magazine drills hundreds of times and could change magazines in two seconds. But in those two seconds, I faced an enemy who still had 10 rounds, <clears throat> excuse me, in his weapon. He fired on full automatic. Several rounds hit my hand as it reached for a magazine. My middle finger hung by a piece of skin the fingernails and ends of the other three fingers were shot off, and the knuckle of my index finger was shot away. The hanging finger got in the way. I glanced down and saw the problem. Then I used the tip of my little finger and my thumb to insert a new magazine. Several of us shot at the third man at the same time, and he went down. I think him die, Ba said. This is just one incredible paragraph from one of the latest SOG books, Born Twice. And today, we are honored to have as our guest the author who lived through that scene, and who continued on with that mission, despite having his middle finger shot off, 
and as you heard the description about the other fingers damaged to the fingernail. Dale Hansen, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> that moment in time, when I got to that part of your book, it, it just stopped. I'd heard about this before, but it's one thing to read it. And, you know, when we're running SOG Recon, we always think about, oh, we always want 30-round magazines. And this is why. Right. This is the epitome of every recon man's worst nightmare, which, fortunately, you survived it because you're right. just a tough dude. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And so just a little bit at that moment, I want to go back to the book to talk a little bit more. Because what, what happened with the bleeding? I mean, after you get a finger shot off and a, and a digit of your index finger, and you're still just thinking about getting that magazine into your car 15, the old one out and the new one in. But there's bleeding. What happened with that part of it? Yeah, I think with just about all of us who get wounded and you're still in combat, the wound winds up being a minor factor. You still have more things to think about. And it's the, the primary thing that's going on at that time is the fact you have to eliminate that danger. And, uh, of course, in this case, uh, you know, forget the finger. You, know, you need to get a magazine in there. Well, yeah, because if you don't mind, your book is, is just so well done. You know how to write. Mm. And it's, you, you write's good. <laughs> but I want <laughs> to go back to that because... Um, you you talked about how you pulled the field dressing out from your harness, but you couldn't tie the knot. So Ken, who's your one zero, Ken Worthley, and this is on, <clears throat> excuse me, RT Florida. Right. And so Ken's the one zero, you're the one one, and Bobby Garcia was the one two who was a strap hanger on that team that day. It means somebody who wasn't a regular member, but he's qualified, experienced. You brought him on the team for extra firepower and have another SF man on that team. So those are the three Americans with three in Ditch? Four. Four in Ditch. And so this is, you had been on the ground at this point for a day? Right. That, that was a fast mission. Right. Um, every minute uh, was <laughs> engaged, every second. Well, and then uh, just to get back, because after you talk about pulling the, the, um, the dressing out, so Ken, the one zero... Ken and I turned my hand over and flipped the swinging finger into the palm of my hand so I wouldn't lose it as he tied the knot. There was heavy movement in the brush. Ken pointed a direction for Noy, that's one of the indigenous team members, and we broke contact and began to evade. Bob and I sprinkled CS patter on our back trail and hoped that when the hounds sniffed it up their noses, they would be ruined for the rest of the day. For two hours, we evaded our pursuers, switching direction, fish-hooking back to ambush our back trail, using every trick we had learned from the old SOG warriors. May afternoon, it seemed that we had invaded, evaded them, at least for now. So you're moving for two hours afterwards. And right. you're moving and you're still you're... <laughs> I mean, I keep thinking about the loss of finger and the, the yeah. tip of your index finger. Yeah. And you were able to put the finger aside to save it just in case. Yeah, I had to flip it inside because <laughs> yeah, I, I was afraid they'd lose it. Indeed. You know, you know, and 
I was hoping they could get it back on again. Right. Yeah. Hope that was in our so. first firefight. Either <clears throat> we had two more firefights just prior to that, and uh, they were after us, and they were tracking us with uh, their bloodhounds. Right. So that was paramount in in us too, and they were moving all around us when we got to that point. So you had been on the ground for how long at that point when you had your first and second contact before this? Yeah. Um, we were in combat within the first hour of landing on the ground. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, we thought we were okay. And um, we started hearing uh, the, the gunshots. You know, every time you move, they would shoot or stop. They would shoot. And, um, and then uh, uh, finally we had two trackers, and they came right up on top of us. And um, uh, Ba, my tail gunner, um, uh, uh, said, Hansan, Hansan, you know, Visa come, tracker come. And so Hansan is the way he, your, he could, he your little see, people called you. That enhanced it to be Hansan. Yeah, uh, because my Chinese <laughs> came up with um, uh, the Han Dynasty. They said, well, you're, you're, you're Chinese man now, and you're on our team, and we, we are going to give you a Chinese name. And uh, it was the Han Dynasty, the warrior, warrior dynasty, and then Sun. And I don't remember what that meant but every time we went in the field they would take magic marker and on my back they would write um in chinese characters hansan kumbaya chin which meant hansan never die and that meant <laughs> god is looking down Indeed. and he says that's my guy and uh, i'm going to take care of him and so we had within an hour on the ground that we had the trackers we took out uh the first one he went straight to the ground and then um we knew there were two, but we couldn't see the second one. And we right. knew he was there. And uh, we started looking and looking. And then Bob Garcia could see his feet under the, the bushes. Really? And Yeah. Uh, so he did the one seven, or seven, M79 and uh, took him down. And so we got <sighs> the first two down. And then uh, we moved a little bit farther and we had some more. And we yeah. took them out. And Bobby Garcia, yeah. just as a personal side note, yeah. we went through training group together. Just an outstanding man in his own right. Mm -hmm. from uh, Oakland and uh, even though it's Bobby Garcia he couldn't speak Spanish at all he's just as, yeah. just as American as the rest of us you know yeah. he's just a good soldier yeah. and uh, when we had gone through uh, some advanced training with the RTT mm -hmm. he had an incident with a cook so Bobby's like maybe about 140 150 pounds soaking mm -hmm. wet and the cook was 6'5 over 300 pounds pulled a knife on Bobby and the men who were there talked about Bobby how that cook ended up on the floor with his knife at his throat. And Bobby says, don't mess with us again. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. <laughs> but that's Bob Garcia, just an incredible yeah. soldier with you that day. Yeah. And if you don't mind, I want to get back because I just this whole, that day, that moment in time, to think that, A, you survived it, I still boggles my mind. Mm. But then after moving for two hours, getting back to the book again, we moved along a ridge line where there were many trails and every indication of heavy enemy activity. We made a security stop to watch our back trail. My hand ached and I had no way to stop the bleeding. So what happened at that point? Did that bandage you had to put another bandage on or what? No. You couldn't. Yeah, it would just... Uh, I mean, you only had so many pints of blood to lose. Yeah, it, uh, it just would stop after a while. It would coagulate on some. Coagulate, you know, and it was like, um, like a cast. It was just a solid red cast and uh it's kind of one of those things that you don't want to look no you, you know you really messed up you know and and i don't want to look at all and 
Uh, if that was me, I would have passed out looking at it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not big yeah. on that blood stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing was, on that cast, I could only get the thumb out and the tip of my little finger. So it was hard to change magazines. Oh, uh, yeah, because uh, you're talking about thumb and your, and your little one. Yeah, little and, yeah, and you're in combat for solid, basically, sure. for 24 hours, you know, and and um, uh, you you got to change that magazine real quick. And it was the first of many, many times we had to change that magazine. So so at during that break, you could hear the enemy out there. You could hear them moving, the dogs. There's all kinds of enemy activity, and other dogs were barking further out. And uh, you had a... <laughs> I just love the way you write this. The dogs barked. Other dogs bayed. Hounds on a scent, your scent. Mm-hmm. And I pictured their handlers being yanked ahead by taut leashes. Our shadows were long. We were at the time of day when the last of birds make their final prep before they bend their legs on a limb and cause their feet to grasp the branch. So you go on here, and then the dogs were a problem. Bob again laced the area generously with CS patter, and that was a a standard operating procedure with the recon teams. We used that uh, patterned mace as well as black pepper. Mm -hmm. And uh, because they were the damn dogs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Never ending. And uh, so at that point, you were able to get an RON established. And that night, you laid in the darkness after that firefight. You were able right. to get through that night. And again, the night, I want to just talk a little bit to give a sense of you at night in Laos, bleeding on and off. And that night, I lay on my belly in the total darkness of the jungle without moving. And you had in your hand four Claymore detonators. So after you established the RON, which is the rest overnight slot, the team would put out Claymores and they had clackers that would ignite them. Mm. Right. So your job was to sit there, hold the clackers. If you heard enemy activity, you would clack them off, which a Claymore mine for audiences, 450 to 500 ball bearings yeah. with plastic explosives, anti-personnel mine. 750 pellets, 720 pellets. 720? Yeah, like See, a, and they're the same as double odd buckshot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a, a devastating weapon. Yeah. 250 yards out, it would shoot. 250? It, yeah, and it would devastate anything in front of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, and I had four of them in front of me. And um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I couldn't, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to do the clackers with my right hand. Yeah. And so I, I lined up the four clackers tried to find someplace solid and I put my heels in my hands on the back of the four clackers. Yeah. But I was a little bit nervous. And, and I, you know, what do you do with yourself, you know, while you're waiting for the communists to come up the hill, which I expected any time. Yeah. And so my, my fingers, I could catch myself going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> to my, remind yourself yeah, of the clackers. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I wasn't <laughs> nervous, but my fingers weren't listening to me. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But just, and again, it's pitch black. You yeah. can't see a thing. Yeah. When you wave your hand in front of your face, forget it. Yeah. yeah you would, just as things get to where you're losing your last amount of darkness, you try to memorize everything in front of you, any, any foliage that might be darker, and you memorize that in your mind. If you turned your head or shifted your body around, you wouldn't know which way you were facing even. 
So you had to memorize it and stay there. You've probably been through that too before. Yeah, I've never had four at once. Um, so also, we should set the time frame here. This is September or August um, of 1969. August, yeah. yeah. And um, you... Your RT Florida came out of, at that time, we had three SOG bases in South Vietnam. We had CCN North, CCC Contum, which is where you were based with your team, and the third was CCS Down South. And Florida was put on this mission. What was the general mission that you were given prior to going in? The reason um, why you were there was to... Yeah, it, it was basically the, the general one of, of all of them, intelligence, all that kind of thing. It was on the heels of Colonel Rowe being arrested and so forth. And but yeah. so, this is for our audience again because this is now fifty three, fifty four years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about Colonel Rowe and what led to the to the Colonel Rowe, the commanding officer for the Fifth Special Forces Group, which is all of Vietnam, which covered all the A teams. SOG was detached from. That was our headquarters for pay, records, personnel, things. Um, things like that, but the all the other A camps and any other operation went through Fifth Special Forces Group. The commander, the colonel, the Green Beret, and his executive officer and five others were <clears throat> imprisoned. Right. And if you explain that scenario a little yeah. bit and what led up to that, because yeah. this is the aside from your personal anguish and what you went through personally. This leads to a major story that supersedes your personal and whatever the men on that team were involved, which there'll be a few more details unfolding as we go forward. But if you could give us a little background on Colonel Rowe. Right. I mean, he's highly respected within the special very, forces Very, very respected. Community. And, and um, I, at that time, there was a project going on. And, and <clears throat> when you get the full backstory regardless what we went through in this particular mission, it gave it incredible importance of what we had, had found. Um, we had several projects in, in Vietnam. Of course, the CNC, the SOG programs, we had the A-teams that were spread all over the, the, the country, you know, trying to interdict the communists and so forth. But we also had certain projects, and one of those was Project 57 called GAMA, and Agama ran foreign agents and so forth and recon teams and so forth into Laos and I think it was mainly Cambodia and uh, uh, trying to find intelligence on the enemy, set up spy networks and things like that. Well, all of a sudden it, it started to become that um, we were losing entire teams that completely disappeared or we would find intelligence and send in larger units to exploit the, the information only to find out that they had disappeared right in front of us uh, and they had the foreknowledge that we were coming and things like that. So, so ultimately we discovered we had a mole that had uh, infiltrated very, very high uh, in SOG programs. And uh, um, it, it got to the point where 75% of all intelligence that Vietnam found at that time came from that particular project, Project Gamma, uh, B57. So it was a very lucrative uh, program. Very productive. Oh, extremely so. And uh, uh, so anyway, SOC uh, wound up canceling it, just completely disbanded, even though 75% of the intelligence was uh, from there. But we never found out who the mole was for a while. 
Well, some uh, conventional units raided and found a Viet Cong complex. And um, uh, in the process of things, they found a bunch of photographs in which the person in Project Gamma, the Vietnamese guy, I think his last name was Mr. Chuan, um, uh, he was the one who was actually sending out the teams and all this stuff. And the picture showed him with the communist headquarters uh, being decorated and patted <clears throat> on the back and everything. Really? And it turned out, there's our mole. And so um, uh, somehow, that, since the project was ended, how do you get Mr. Chuan back so we could get him? Well, they invented a new program in which Mr. Chuan came back to orchestrate that one, and then he was arrested. And he was questioned and so forth, and they gave him sodium pentothal, uh, as, that's truth serum right. for some of your people. And, uh, and a lie uh, detector test, too, correct? Yeah. 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 And, Which and he failed. He failed everything. And he says, I will not help you Americans. And very, very clearly, he was the, the mole, the double agent. So anyway, uh, we decided, well, we're going to go to the CIA people who had two programs that were going on when you were there, when I was there, uh, called uh, <clears throat> uh, Phoenix. And it was changed. The name was changed to the innocuous name of PRU, Provisional Reconnaissance Unit. Right. Whose mission was is to eliminate um, uh, the fifth column of people. Yeah, the uh, Viet Cong infrastructure. Yeah, the, the enemy agents, the spies. And uh, um, each year they would uh, assassinate or kill many, many of them. So we, uh, Colonel Rowe and his people went to the CIA and said, what do we do with Mr. Chu? And he refuses to come back to us. We couldn't uh, release them, couldn't give them to the Vietnamese because we never told them about Project 57. So um, the CIA says, you shrugged their shoulders. They said, eliminate with extreme prejudice. Yeah, of course. Well, there's three levels of... Uh, yeah. How, was, that's, the, that's, the, yeah. that's the other two? Yeah, eliminate, eliminate with prejudice and eliminate with extreme, extreme prejudice. prejudice. Eliminate with prejudice means ruin the reputation so he's ineffective. Yeah. But you don't kill him. Uh, extreme prejudice is, is the euphemism means you know, kill them, get Which rid of them. Which came out uh, for the first time in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. In terms yeah. of the movie. And it's actually still actually used. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so um, the CIA basically told special forces, you got to kill this guy. Get rid of him. You know, uh, you can't turn him loose. So Colonel Rowe and, and eight of his people executed this program. Well, other people, not the colonel himself, but there were right. people under the 5th right. Special Forces group yeah. that actually... Yeah. Uh, you could talk about yeah. the ride out to the South China Sea. Yeah, he was. They um, jacked him up with sodium pentothal, the truth serum. Yeah, and then they stuck him in a sack and took him out in a, in a boat, out of uh, <clears throat> I think it was, their, it was either Saigon or the Trag, <clears throat> into the deep water where all the sharks were, and they lifted him out of the boat high enough that they could pop him in the head with the, right. the pistols, and they shot him twice in the head, dumped him in the t South China Sea. And then somehow um, Abrams, who hated special forces. So at that time, Creighton Abrams was the supreme commander for all American troops in South Vietnam. He replaced General Westmoreland. Right. He was a four-star general, and he also had a prejudice against special forces. Right. For being, He's a tanker right. from World War II, yeah. where he did good things in World War II. But it came to Vietnam. He right. wasn't one of our favorite generals, that's for sure. Right, and it wasn't just that he was a tanker and we were yeah. infantry. It was that uh, <laughs> we had as many mercenaries working for special forces as he had uh, Americans working for him, and he couldn't tell us what to do. We were under the CIA rather than the, the 
standard army. Right. And so uh, here was this renegade army, which Apocalypse Now mis mis shows. It makes it make us makes us out to be renegades, and we were not. And uh, anyway, um, so we're well, also saw- just for the record, I mean, yeah. Mac V Sog. Whenever a team had a uh, a memo, our after action reports went to Saigon. They went directly to the White House. There was somebody at the White House assigned for Mac V Sog, and then the orders yes. that would come back to Sog headquarters in Saigon, then transmit directly to the base, and that would be their majority of the missions were there. And those after action reports went back. The President of the United States, and that's the other thing that pissed off Creighton Abrams because that was the chain of command for us, and he was out of that chain of command. He was out of it. He didn't yeah. have a need to know, and he yeah. didn't like it. Yeah. So that was another aspect of it, yeah. which is a part of the unique aspect of SOG. Yeah. And special forces and and so forth, our general idea of our missions came from what was known as the country team. I think Robin Moore wrote a book called The Country he did. Team. Yeah. Excellent book. Yeah, a good book. And, um, and basically, I think that's made up by the ambassador, the head of the CIA, head of special forces. And maybe uh, maybe Abrams was allowed to be on that or whatever. But there, it was a group of people that made um, strategic uh, sure. uh, uh, decisions. And, of course, we got our, our general ideas of what we were to do, uh, uh, Colonel Rowe and so forth, um, carried them out. Now, Colonel Rowe, uh, uh, Abrams found out what we had done, so he turned around and arrested Colonel Rowe, who had actually been only in country a month. Yeah, he had been in country a short time. And also, yeah. the people who executed the double agent, even though they were, they weren't in fifth group, but they were detached. They were attached somehow. I forget mm-hmm. what the, but they also had a cover story. Yeah. So Colonel Rowe, when he's approached by Abrams, he uses the cover story. At some point, the cover story gets blown by one of the people involved in the planning. Then it becomes a media sensation. Mm-hmm. There's newspaper articles. Um, it becomes a national story. Right. And so this builds up. As you said earlier, yeah. Colonel Rowe, his executive officer for Fifth Special Forces yeah. Group, are incarcerated. There's eight with, of eight of them total. Total eight. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And they um, there's publicity. I mean, it's like I was back in the states watching this go down in '69. Yeah. In between my tours in Sog, yeah. and watching this, like we all knew who Colonel Rowe was. Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute, you should be getting the medal for killing a double agent. Yeah. But it wasn't quite clear. And they ended, and the Washington Post had interviews with his wife saying, oh, my husband loved America. Yeah. We love we love democracy. Yeah. yeah, or something like that. And so, the again, the press buys the story from the family and all the bullshit mm-hmm. that came out. Yeah. It's just like today. Yeah, And they put Colonel Rowe, not only he was in Long Bend Stockade, right. where rapists and murderers and thieves and everything went, and he was kept in a conix, a metal conix that you haul garbage out. And he and the eight, uh, the eight total um, special forces guys were in, in a conix. Uh, and they were uh, Abrams refused to send him to the states because he would get a fair trial in the states. And um, so he wanted to try him himself. And he orchestrated uh, this trial that was coming up. So Colonel Rowe was arrested for murder along with the rest of the people. Which brings us into our mission. Right. Yeah. So, but again, you guys are aware of this, but in your briefing briefing before the mission, there's no mention of that because you guys have your area recon. And so now after your firefight, and again, I can't read every detail in this book. You just got to get it because A, it's well-written. 
the story just grabs your heart and chokes you up like just so well done and uh but there's a couple other things and uh i want to come back to you you explain being on the ground in the morning and hearing sounds you think it's an airplane but it's really a truck and that kind of stuff but so we get back to this mission at some point you leave the ron and how do you take it from there and then we'll come back to um uh, your little people come back to you and say Hanson, Hanson, Buku VC, Buku VC. Yeah, Because yeah, they always said VC, whether it was NVA, which yeah. is the North Vietnamese Army or the Viet Cong, they would not be in Laos. It would be the North Vietnamese regular yeah. army. Uh, in Laos, by 69, there was over 30,000 stationed there to keep the Ho Chi Minh Trail mm-hmm. open. In Cambodia, anywhere from 50 to 100,000. Right. Then they'd go across, attack our bases, and that's why we ran recon to see what the enemy right. was going to do, the early warning device over there. Mm-hmm. So um, you break you break out of the RON, and what, yeah. what were you yeah. moving forward into yeah. from there? D- during the night, you know, they're sweeping up the hill. We can, I can, I can hear them coming, and uh, my uh, Ba on the right side of me he says, "Visa come, Buka Visa," and, and I could hear them. I can, um, and uh, I. Tapped the guy on the left of me, you know, with and uh, I think I tapped him with my the back side of my hand so it wouldn't start bleeding again, and I could just tell he was just tense as a board and they were sweeping up the hill, and uh, all I could remember is I could I could hear the trucks coming down below and I, that's when I realized there was a road below the hill, uh, so they were perfectly lined up, heard them get out of the trucks, and um, and then I could hear the dogs and I thought. I started praying. I said, "God, plug the noses of those yeah. dogs," you know, and because uh, I thought, you know, these, it's possible for these people to sweep through us, right through us during yeah. the night, and and not know where we're there. Um, but now you can't fool the dogs. I said, "God, just you know, plug their noses." Yeah, and they swept right through us, and uh, um, dogs didn't smell us. You know, I believe in prayer, and uh, they didn't smell us, and. Um, so, so they went, went past you as opposed to going through your RON. Yeah, they yeah, went, went, went through us. Yeah, but it's just, they must have made a break, you know, going by. Was it daylight yet? Still dark. Still you know. dark. When they literally walk through your RON. Yeah, and go right through us, sweep by. Just say that again. Yeah. It's dark. The NVA walked through our rest overnight site where you yeah. had your perimeter set up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tiny, only seven of us. And of course, you know, especially when it's tight like that. You want to be close enough that you can touch the guy oh, next to you. Of course, yeah, yeah. And another thing I realized about war is that uh, you can be 50 feet apart from the next guy and you're not fighting in the same battle. You know, what you're seeing and doing and, and experiencing might be totally different from the next guy. And uh, I know Ba and me, and I think it was Noy next to me, um, we we sensed those NVA like crazy. But I couldn't tell what the they other end probably, was they doing. They could probably smell them. Yeah, like our my South Vietnamese could smell those commies. Yes, yes. Now I'm just a city slicker. I couldn't tell the difference between yeah. North and South scent. Yeah. <laughs> but they well, so I, I mentioned in the, the book uh, someplace there, I did a mission for the, the uh, Australians, and it was thick, so thick, crawling on the belly thing, booby traps everywhere, and that was so thick. I crawled up, and all of a sudden I smelled the breath of an MVA, smelled the nook mom. No, and I didn't move at all. And look, I, mom is a poignant sauce that the yeah, traditional Vietnamese put on yeah. their rice. And I still didn't see him, but I knew he was there. And I just froze and froze and froze, and then finally he moved, and I could just see a shadow on the other side. 
And then we just slowly backed out. And it was one of those times I smelled the enemy and oh. skipped an ambush. And there's one other guy that told me the same thing. And it was Ed Zebron and his mission, which I'm writing in the next book, um, where he smelled the body odor and, and the breath. He was that close to the enemy. and he's, But there were so many enemy that he could smell them. In my case, it was just one, and I was that close to him. But uh, yeah, I, I, the Vietnamese... Well, yeah, there's another book coming out by Dick Thompson, who, for our viewers, if you haven't listened to Jocko podcast number 204, 205, and 206 with Dick Thompson, he's been on with Jocko already. But those interviews, again, he could smell them. It's amazing. It's and amazing. see, he, was a, he grew up in the country. Yeah. Or city slickers, maybe our nose were fouled or something. But you, you, you and Dick Thompson yeah. smelling the enemy is like, yeah. oh my god. Yeah, you you wouldn't uh, smell it if you were in a base camp, but out there your 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 senses so were attuned to the natural smells, you know. And, and the other smell I smelled was uh, also in this firefight. Um, I was, um, I don't know if we'll get to it at all, but I had uh, went through three rifles. Uh, we're going to cover and this, that part. Yeah, and I could smell the guy. Uh, who had the rifle before me on the rifle. You're just so fast. You're getting ahead of this marvelous story <laughs> in your wonderful book here. <laughs> so basically, what you have is down at night, they walk through you. In the morning, you get up and your team moves out from the RON mm-hmm. and go back to moving. Yeah. And it was the scent was to keep the going to high ground. What yeah. was the point of view at that point? Or just I, to I think survive? It was, I think it was... Look con- for an LZ. I think we were continuing the mission. Uh, we weren't even thinking about... Um, even though I was wounded, um, uh, we were going to continue the recon and um, maybe go through the day and then maybe think about getting expelled. Um, and, and of course, that's what we bumped in. And you still, have your, you still have your bandages on. Yeah. <laughs> You've lost a finger. You're still holding yeah. your finger, your blown away finger at that point? Just for- yeah, but that was inside the bandages, so that wasn't going anywhere. All right, I just want yeah. to get that on the record, folks. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So you move on. Uh, again, the dogs, and um, you just got to get the book for for the detailed part of that. And then eventually, your team moves out. You uh, you have a combo check with uh, Covey. And then um, I want to go back to the book because the, you, at this point, the team had found numerous trails, well-traveled trails. And again, the trails were coming down what was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm-hmm. And the, there would be branches that would come into South Vietnam. That's the way the enemy infiltrated weapons, personnel, food, supplies, intel, and POWs they would take north. Mm-hmm. And your job was to get, see what the heck they're doing out there on this day. So you have a commo check. And, the, and returning to the book, you saw that there were numerous trails. The paths were hard-packed, gray clay. So this proves that things were really you're in some kind of a high activity enemy base camp, possibly, or at least an area that has a lot of enemy traffic. And you said, uh, you write in the book, we set up along one of these, one of those trails. We did not trust our ears to alert us to coming soldiers, so we watched where the path emerged from the bushes. Then they appeared like magic in front of us, several of them alert and in full uniforms we opened fire in moments it was over and the column was dispatched we swept the trail 
and while our Viets secured the ambush site, we Americans charged forward to the place where the trail emerged from the bushes. Ken and Bob dropped down to examine two of the soldiers while I secured the trail ahead, firing my rifle and tossing grenades. I rushed back and joined Ken. Two enemy lay crumpled on the ground. The markings on their uniforms indicated they were both colonels. They were taller than most Vietnamese, very well-groomed officers in clean uniforms. One of the officers had a Tokarov pistol on his belt. The first colonel had a leather satchel slung over one shoulder. He was very high-ranking communist courier. Noi slipped up to us. He seemed astonished as he spoke. Chinese, he said. Him Chinese man. Mm. No Vietnam. We began to hear shouting. Dozens of men shouted commands in Vietnamese. I glanced into the satchel. List papers which appeared to be official orders. Bundles of American money. Was he a spy paymaster? This is a treasure trove, I said. <laughs> My God. <laughs> yes, that's a treasure trove and then some. Yeah. But you must have, I can't imagine. You killed the two and they're Chinese, they're colonels. And I think when you and I were talking off camera, you also mentioned um, your SOPs at this point. Not only do you go through the leather pouch, yeah. but because you've been an intelligence trained, what else did they do at at that moment if you had the time? Yeah, yeah. My, my specialty was M eleven F, which is operations and intelligence, which is all the spy stuff too. Indeed. So when when we went over there, um, we went through everything, uh, pistol, rifle, um, and uh, um, inside the, the 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 bags, you know, the satchel charge. And then we took his clothes off, too. We took his shoes, um, uh, his shirt, his back. And I, I remember when we were pulling off his shirt, you know, he, had, he must have died instantly because uh, uh, he didn't bleed all over. He, it was like he had holes, but, you know, no blood coming out. So he must have died instantly. But I remember when we were pulling off and tugging on the sleeve, the, the blood would pile up like a dull rod. You know, really? just a red rod yeah, yeah. coming out. And then when the, you know, the sleeve would come free, it would sink back into him and stuff. And all this stuff... It was quagling already. Yeah. And it was like, we we would take... Um, uh, I think I mentioned to you once that we captured a AK-47 once. And, uh, uh, of course, that's that uh, maroon-colored wood stock on it. Yeah. This was different. And we uh, brought it in, and it was hard plastic. And they, the CIA sent it to... Langley, Virginia, and it was uh, hard plastic, and it was made in Czechoslovakia. Well, we would look at his clothes. We'd take his clothes, and they'd say the cotton came from such and such in the world, and they're helping the North Vietnamese. When now, they would they examine tell everything on analysis, just from the clothing. Yeah, everything. Yeah, they could. What they could tell you what year the cloth was made, when, when the crop was grown and where it was made. So every single thing on that person was an item of intelligence. So while the enemy was still charging on us, they're on us again, uh, we were still busy unwrapping, you know, t taking things, filling them into the rucksack, 
every bit of intelligence we could get examining him. You know, he's a clean-cut uh, Chinese guy, you know, t- fairly tall and everything else. And both of them were colonels, the two hi- highest-ranking people we'd ever, anyone in, had captured or that, killed that's overseas. Probably, probably in the entire SOG history, yeah. the eight-year history, yeah. that had to be two of the highest-ranking commie scumbags they ever were. killed in action. They were. Yeah, and then uh, of course later on, uh, the information that came off. Let of me that. just say it again. Yeah. This is the year twenty twenty three. I delight in this. You killed two Chinese communist colonels. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I just yep. had to indulge for a second. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so while you're doing this, the team is getting ready to leave the area, and everything is packed up. You finally do move out, and then uh, what goes from there? The the, the enemy are after us so big time. Yeah, we were in a communist base area. I think it was 609. And the 66th NVA regiment was there. Right. There were several thousand enemy in there, and they were after us, especially once we they realized we killed these two colonels. Well, let me just yeah. help with your book. <laughs> okay. Because it's so well written yeah. here. Because at that point, uh, Bob Garcia, who was a comma guy, is carrying the radio. Mm-hmm. He's now directing airstrikes. He's talking to Covey. You are working with uh, Ken and your little people, picking up everything, you're now moving. And like you said, there's a lot of enemy activity. Going back to the book, according to Covey later, there were hundreds of them attacking us. I took out two of them at the very edge and seized the rifle of one of them. It was an M2 carbine, which was a World War II weapon. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the early days, SOG had those before the CAR-15 came out. They were charging us in mass with rifles, machine guns, and mortars. Ken shouted, Dale, cover us from that side. We had no, no one on the flank. I ran to the place just as they were rushing us from that side. The ground sloped down from there, and I held them off with my rifle. There were numerous explosions and gunshots around me. Yet... I heard the bullets hiss through the grass. Bullets mowed the grass in front of me. Someone needed my rifle on the other side of the LZ, and I gave them my M16. Would that be the CAR-15? CAR-15, yeah. Yeah. As I was slow changing magazines with just my thumb and the tip of my little finger, I had a carbine. The smell of the soldier sweat. This is from the dead soldier mm-hmm. you got it from. Mm-hmm. This is the smell of the soldier sweat and fear and death clung to the weapon. I mean, <laughs> it was as if his last minute in life was forever stamped on his weapon. I was firing as quickly as I could when a burst was directed at me from the side. One of the rounds would have struck me in the face and broken my cheekbone, but it went between the fingers of my good hand as I aimed the rifle and went through the comb of the rifle and stopped just at my skin. Mm -hmm. The rifle stock was splintered, flimsy, and barely held together. WTF? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just... Crazy, you know, you know and, and the most, well, I I guess a couple of things, but the, the most memorable thing was 
when I held it up to my face to shoot, I knew exactly the emotions and the thoughts of that man that that, that uh, I killed. Uh, his sweat was on there. That you could smell the fear. Um, I, I, I don't know what the phenomena is, whether your body secretes something that sticks to the rifle, but it was as if that guy's mind was still there on the gun. I could just smell it. And, that, and of course, the rifle gets shot in two. And then uh, by that time, we had casualties on the other end, wound up with another car 15. And uh, um, so I was on my third rifle at that point, you know. Um, <laughs> During one mission. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, I'd been shot the first time then. Yes. And then um, I, um, I talked to uh, Ryan. He was the cubby writer. He was a cubby pilot. And he said um, I had held off three platoons on that side with that little car 15 and that in uh, the carbine in the carbine you know so wow. it's uh, 120 yeah so this is a guy flying covey and he was able to look down at the see, battle scene and could see the whole he thing told you that yeah. you personally held off three platoons as they're advancing on yeah. your little recon team yeah and then later on i met him at um after the war in a scuba school underwater operations the same one the seals go through and um he said that there were a thousand uh, uh, NVA around us at that LZ when we were trying to get out. So it was, it was horrendous fighting. Uh, the, it was a, a hundred percent of a roar of explosions and guns, oh, yeah. and yet you could smell the, the hear the grass go down. Strangest things happen in combat, but how can you hear? But I did. I could All hear, your hear senses the grass. are on acute alert. Yeah, yeah, and you could hear the grass being mowed by bullets. And the um, <clears throat> as you wrote in the book again. B-40 rockets descended on us as well. Yeah. And then, Hanson, Hanson, Hanson. I heard my name called over all the noise of the fight. Hanson, Hanson. It was Ba. He was standing straight up under fire and faced me. His face was distraught and in anguish. I faced him and ran a few places. I ran a few paces to see what he wanted. Hanson, Hanson. Worthily, him die. Worthily, him die. But again, in the fog of war, which I just want to read this because it, you captured this essence of the fog of war sometimes mm -hmm. when you hear something, it comes into your mind, and it doesn't accurately grasp what's coming in. And in the anguish that I had read in the features, I completely misunderstood what he wanted of me. You talking about Ba as he mm -hmm. calls your name. I had been their leader and friend. He wanted me to tell him what to do, but I misunderstood him. I shouted back at him, Well, what do you want me to do about it? I thought Ba wanted me to bring him back to life, meaning bring back Ken. In the absurdity of what I thought he said, I blurted out these words. Then the full situation came to me. I glanced around the field. It was a maelstrom of explosions, and as far as I could tell, it seemed that only Ba and I were left alive. I had to get Ken's body home and save the team and the satchel. So it's at that point that you finally hear helicopters coming. Yep, yep. And I, and I, I yell at him. Um, is that I, I, yeah, I get get him, get his body out. You snap him in, into the uh, the ropes, 
and uh, um, and then I says, and I signal, I signed him. I said, "This satchel," and I, I open up my shirt, uh, and and I says, "Put satchel in the shirt. Put it into Ken's shirt." Yeah, so how we big would get was the satchel, by the way? Um, it was it was enough that you could get it into a shirt, uh, but it was big. It's like a leather, big. like a leather uh, satchel. And I think it was leather. You yeah. know, it might have been a fake leather because I never. Right. You know, my mind wasn't on that. <laughs> no, you were a little busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I, I wanted Ken's body gone. I thought everybody else was get dead or gone, and uh, Bob and I were the only ones left alive. So I was. Uh, I said, "Get him out of here!" And then I ran to the other end of the. And the way they extracted him was the helicopter because there's no LZ. They had to drop the ropes first. Yeah. And they had the McGuire rigs on them, which was like a leather strap, mm-hmm. and it had a harness where you could put your hand into, and that would be at the end of a 150 foot piece of rope. And so you're able to lift out some of the team as well as Ken right. Worthley on that first flight. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I, I just ran back because I figured, well, we uh, I need to uh, protect the team you know, at that point. So I, held, I went back to where those that three platoons was running up the hill, started firing back there again. Yeah. And then I heard my, my them yelling again, Hansan, Hansan. And um, I looked back, and I saw Bob Garcia, and he was alive. And I thought everybody else was dead. Apparently, they made another rant. And by the way, Bob Garcia called all the air strikes on top of us. Right, because yeah. you had that section where yeah. during this, this maelstrom, as you describe it, yeah. you know, Bob's on the radio. He's directing gunships. They had the 6,000 rounds per minute from the mini guns. Right. He had the A-1 Sky Raiders. Uh, Phantom Jets dropped 250 pound bobs and then you heard me go back to the book Dale, Dale I didn't know there was anyone left to call it was Bob Garcia where is Ken he screamed mm-hmm. he's dead what? Bobby's voice was that of incredulity and anguish he's dead Bob he was shot in the neck I already sent him out but rather instead Bob was shocked, but rather he crouched and shouted into the handset as the A-1 spad pilot. I want 500-pound bombs 50 meters out. I was close enough to hear the jet pilot answer back. Are you crazy? I can't tell 50 meters from 500 meters from up here. You will be killed. I tell you, we are being overrun. I want it at 50 meters right now. Are you sure? Bob screamed into the handset. I said 50 meters. I want it right now. That is an order. So meanwhile, your side of the defensive circle is getting hot again. You run back. There's more ammunition. The bomb runs. And it just this maelstrom just goes mm-hmm. on. Well, and they know what we got. And, and at that time, they probably knew more than we did what we had got in that satchel charge and those two colonels. And it was like at least a thousand of them, and they were just swarming on us. They, they had to get that back, you know. They knew. Yeah. And so at one point, I had already thrown nearly all my grenades but could no longer pull the pins nor throw them with my bandaged hand. I thought I heard a helicopter, and when I glanced that way, saw nothing. No one seemed to be left on the ground. I had given the radio to Bob long before. Then I remembered the the Earth 10 radio in my pouch. The frequency was set. 
So you got into there. Is there anybody there? I know. <laughs> it was t- talk about embarrassing. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. yeah. but it's a, again, it's that everything's going on so dramatic. All the noise, and you're firing. I, I, the, oh. I think I'm the only guy left on the ground. Yeah, I have no radio. <laughs> Everything's exploding all around me, and and all of a sudden I remember that little RT10 radio. Yeah, and, and I have no idea who who to say what you know who am I going to talk to? It's the Irk what 10. freak? Either yeah. ten, and so I just pushed the button and said, "Is anybody there?" <laughs> you know, and um, Ryan heard heard it I, again. I guess Ryan's Covey, in the cubby overhead. Covey directing the airstrike. Bob would talk to him. He directs the airstrike, and he did the perfect Covey thing. Oh yeah, which is to calm you down, and and so on top of all that maelstrom. And all the stuff that's going on, I don't know how many jets and helicopters were talking to one another. This calm voice comes over the radio. We got you, Dale. <laughs> Just calm. Yeah. And, and I said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm cool now. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm not alone. You know? <laughs> yeah. so, so finally, the helicopter comes up to a hover. Three ropes are dropped. And I'm, I'm sorry. I got to go back to your book here. <laughs> Again, uh, I'm not going to get all the story today, but this book is just incredible. And then uh, in your mind, getting back to the book, the ropes are coming down and you ask yourself, would we be shot there on the LZ at just that moment of salvation? I glanced towards them. Three ropes were suspended from the aircraft. I watched as massive number of bullets directed at us through one of the three lines. So a bullet, an AK-47 round, severed one of the ropes. Right. Oh, my God. So, so Bob and Bob Garcia hooked into one of them, and they were yelling, hands on, hurry, hurry. You know, they we're getting shot <laughs> we up We want to get the hell out of here yeah. now. <laughs> and so I ran over to the only line that's still available, and then I'm thinking, I can't tie a knot with my hand. And so I, I, I just grabbed what I could with that little finger in my thumb and made oh. the biggest overhand lot, lot knot I could make. Yeah. And then put it back, and I figured, when, well, when we go up, it'll tighten, and it did. And then uh, we left the ground, and I got shot again. Well, yeah, but because <laughs> yeah. the way you described this, you're in this firefight, fierce, amazing firefight, all the attack air, bombs, bullets, uh, B-40 rockets directed at you all. One bullet cuts, literally cuts the rope to your salvation. And uh, you watch the rope fall to the ground like a dead snake. And Bob's yelling, come on, Dale, hurry, hurry. So you're looking at the rope on the ground and uh, you do the snap in. Like you said, again, you're dealing with two functional digits, yeah. <laughs> your thumb and your little finger. Yeah. And you're able to, and you said, getting back to the book, we started to lift off under the helicopter and as we rose, the enemy charged the LZ, and they rushed the field, trying to get me to pull me off the rope. I was shooting at them as fast as I could, and they were shooting at me. I felt myself get shot in the back of the head. I vividly recall the sound that came out of my mouth. I didn't pass out, but I knew that I had been shot again. I touched the place with one hand to know how bad the wound was. Did it pierce my skull? <laughs> my, my fingernails <clears throat> passed over the place a second time and pulled a piece of metal from the wound. 
I would be fined. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Assuming we make it the rest of the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Did you were you able to put that little round in your pocket for souvenirs or anything? No, or were you too busy? It, it just came off. Yeah, yeah, and I dropped it. You know. Yeah. Um, oh, thank God you yeah. had a thick head. Yeah. <laughs> Norwegian. Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and because um, there's one other one other scene in there is it, the ropes were. Oh. Getting hung so up. yeah, so yeah. as you're finally being lifted off and. Normally, the preferred method for a rope extraction would be when we practice it without anybody shooting at you. They drop the ropes. You're in a forest or a jungle. And triple canopy could be 150 feet mm -hmm. high with three different layers of jungle vegetation. So we lift up during practice, get above the jungle and fly home mm -hmm. or fly somewhere. Just enjoy the sights. But when you're in the middle of a firefight, the helicopter pilots have got to survive with the bird. If that bird doesn't survive, you're not going to survive. So sometimes they would leave before you were out of the jungle. And the Yui, here, getting back to the book, the Yui was pulling from above. The rope was stretching and taut, and it appeared that the helicopter was about to be pulled out of the sky. I knew that in seconds a frantic pilot would order the door gunner to cut the lines and let us fall to the ground and certain death or capture. I hung below the others on the strings, and I hacked desperately with my knife at the tangle. At the moment the crew chief was about to cut the rope, I hacked through the last of the tangle, and we sprung free, shot like a rubber band into the sky, and in a minute were thousands of feet above the battle. <laughs> my God. And you, and you think of all the little non, you know, once once the big battles thing, well, I lived through this. And then um, you remember some of the little details coming back. It's like, oh, yeah. I was uh, on a single string. And I remember um, for some reason, it, it would wind me up like clockwise, round and round and round, and, and uh, maybe 50 times until it couldn't wind up anymore. And then all of a sudden, I would unwind. And I was just sicker than a dog because I was spinning up there, and then uh, uh, and then uh, we were out of fuel almost because uh, um, they spent so much time you know trying to get us out that they ran us through a hailstorm on the way out, and of course they couldn't make it to Contum, so I think they dropped us off at Ben Head or Doc Peck, one of the two I can't remember. Which were aid camps under siege at the time. Yeah. Yeah, they were having enemy engagements. <laughs> they yeah. dropped in the middle of an enemy engagement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Because you you did talk about that, and then you recalled bullets shooting through one rope, and I saw myself falling thousands of feet. You're like thinking to yourself, you're imagining <sighs> the worst. Yeah. And I glanced under me. Then Bob grabbed the ropes and held it in a death grip, death grip, all the way back. The choppers had been on station max time using most of their fuel as they waited for the ordnance to pound the enemy. They were nearly out of fuel. Ben Het would be the closest place to go. They took an azimuth and proceeded there. They would come in on fumes. We passed through a storm with heavy rain, which was hail, mm -hmm. on top of it. And now you're at 5,000 feet. You're freezing your ass off. 
you're you're shaking from yeah. <laughs> from being so cold. Yeah. Oh, Forty five minutes up there. Oh. Then the chopper slowed down over Ben Het, and you were hung directly under the helicopter before it descended. And then uh, Norm Doney and Mike Buckland steadied us as we touched down. And, you know, so you're back at Ben Het, and Norm was there. So talk a little bit about how Norm, at that point in time, he was the first sergeant for the recon company at CCC. Right. But you two had had your own special bond. Right. Which started from where you yeah. and then, of course Mike and you went through training group together, right? Right. right. Uh, Norm was the one zero of Florida, and so he was kind of my mentor, and and he became like a father figure uh, the rest of his life. He, he was just like another dad, and uh, uh, Norm was as first sergeant of recon company because he went from being our one zero, he went to first sergeant of recon, and then he made him command sergeant major of fifth special forces group. Uh, probably because the, our other his predecessor was in a conics, <laughs> you know, in Long Bend Jail, you know. Uh, but uh, um, he was there, you know. And I, I remember I, I was just from spinning and the adrenaline oh, and yeah. being shot up. I couldn't talk, you know. And, and I was trying to sound intelligent. I was saying, did you get the satchel? I'm saying, and, and he would look at me and I would try to look intelligent and he'd say, yes, we got the satchel. Whoa. <laughs> you know, he was just, he knew what my heart was trying yeah, to say. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, it was critical. Yeah. And then I says, Ken, he's dead. And, and he says, yes, we know we got his body. Oh yeah. Cause yeah. in the book you said, yes, we got the satchel. Yeah. Dale, Bob gave it to us. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. So, um, yeah, I, these things on your mind, you know, did you get Ken's body? Did you get the satchel? You know, that's the pr- pr- uh, predominant things on my mind now that I'm still alive, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, so someone gave you a soft drink. It was cold, it was wet, it was delicious. Yeah. You drank, and then um, then you realized, now you've been on the ground, your senses are coming back to where you are now. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> you write, my legs have been battered when I was slammed against the trees and I was glad the bones and joints seemed to be intact. I glanced at my pants. They were torn in places and tattered. I willed myself to speak coherently (laughs) and I framed the thoughts into words before I let them pass my lips. Ken is dead. Their eyes commiserate it with mine yes we got him Dale his body is safe he'll be sent home to his family and then you said he was brave and calm they nodded each other everyone got out so he was telling you everyone got out one was slightly wounded we will take them back to the FOB and yes the satchel and then Norm told you, he said, we have it. We looked inside. Sog is already on the way with a jet to pick it up. What is inside is massive. The man you got was perhaps the highest ranking communist official ever taken behind enemy lines. It looks like he was a senior Chinese intelligence officer. There were a list of names in the case and with the money we would guess he was a spy paymaster. A captain walked over. 
We are ready, gentlemen. All fueled and waiting. That's our ride, deal. We're going to go with you to Pleiku Hospital to make sure that they take care of you and make sure that no unauthorized people try to talk to you. Mike held my shoulder as we made our way, but I felt my steps grow stronger and I didn't stagger. So you get at the hospital, you settle and they clean you up a little bit. How'd that hospital, how'd they treat you there? And they really had to keep you isolated because of they what did, you had yeah. seen. I was on a long end of a whole row of people. It's funny, I, 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 the next morning, I was something was poking me. I mean, after going through all that, you say something's poking me. And I looked, and you know, the first purple heart you get, you get the purple heart. Yeah, yeah. The second one, you get the oak leaf cluster. Yeah, yeah. Well, they gave me an oak leaf cluster and put it on a three by five card and flicked it into my bed. Oh. <laughs> that was my decoration, you know. No. Yeah, and the oak leaf cluster was, was poking me. But uh, I had to get out of there. I had to get out of there um, just to get outside. And um, I went outside, um, kind of fixed my bed. Well, yeah, and the way, Gay, your writing is superb here. We walk into the warmth of the day. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful to, 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 to stretch my battered legs and breathe the outside air. My bandages were clean and white. I hooked my thumb in a buttonhole in my shirt to hold the ache above my heart. I just want you to know about the satchel, and they told us so far, Doni said. The price of that piece of leather was the life of Ken Worthley, a good man, a brave man, and we would never trade the two. But we got a lot from his sacrifice. What I'm telling you is for you, and it is classified, and, but you have a right to know. And then Mike Butlin was there and said, the colonel you shot was perhaps the top intelligence agent in the country. And he was, as we thought, a spy paymaster. He had a list of all the agents. The money that was in the leather pouch, oh, excuse me, satchel was for them. There was document to be given to all of his agents that read, all agents must lay low because the Americans have en masse Tai Kak Chuyin. That's the man. That's the, the double agent. The double agent that Colonel Rowe was arrested for killing. And that was used to exonerate him. And the charges disappeared after that. Yeah. And so his name also appears on the list of spies the colonel was to pay. So Donnie explains that to you, and um, in a way, this is your side of this. For a moment, as I stood outside the hospital walls, my bare feet in the hot sand, wearing only hospital pajamas, I considered the enormity of it all. A so-called murder in the crowded capital city of bustle and lights and pedicabs and diplomats and ambassadors and perhaps a million people resolved by a tiny recon team that fought for its life in a remote and forbidden jungle sanctuary owned by the enemy. It was too improbable to be just serendipity. Perhaps the guiding hand that protected us also led us to that satchel. And 
for a little bit more background on the significance of that, because at the time, Colonel Rowe and the other seven were incarcerated. And there's all the hoopla, hoopla going on in the media. Both now, it's an na- international story. Mm-hmm. And they're besmirching the reputation of the Green Berets. And there's demands to go forward with the full trial. And then even other accusations in the United States to bring them back for that. And all of a sudden, the Secretary of the Army has a press conference and says, this case is being dropped. Colonel Rowe and the executive officer and the six others will be released ASAP from incarceration and without explanation. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are other things behind. There's another book that was written about this, but failed to mention the significant role of RT Florida in that case. And so the other political sidebar on that was, had that case gone forward, the 5th Special Forces Group, as well as the entire Special Forces Command, would have had a blemish on it that would have, we don't know what the final devastation of that would have been within the ranks of Special Forces. But RT Florida that day, at the price of losing Ken Worthley, Lily saved the 5th Special Forces Group. Mm-hmm. And it was your team, you and Bob and your little people that did it with Ken at a severe mm-hmm. price. And and it's just all of a sudden this thing has dropped and it was years later that it was written about. And Bob, who was a strap hanger, when he got back to base, he turned things over, he cleaned up, went back to another team and he never knew what you knew because mm-hmm. Norman talked to you at the hospital. Bob wasn't wounded somehow. Yeah. I mean, I don't even understand that. You talk yeah. about the grace of the, the yeah. Lord or divine intervention yeah. of some sort here. So Bob goes back. He completes his tour of duty, goes home, goes to civilian life. He, he was living in Oakland at the time, married, had a beautiful girl. And uh, about 10 years ago, he got a phone call from a reporter in Canada, of all places, saying, we're working on a story about that incident with Colonel Rowe. Interesting. And they, he said there was, we had, the reporter said there was a report of a recon team that was there and your name surfaced. Are you aware of this? Bob goes, well, yeah, I, remember, I was there on a mission. And uh, <laughs> she goes, well, are you aware what was in the pouch? And I forget what Bob's answer was, but she gave him more details than what he knew. And again, at, at base camp, you're told not to talk. When you mm-hmm. go back, you shut the hell up, particularly on a mission like this. And nobody came up to, to, to brief him on what had happened. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting what we did find in there as well. The, the paymaster had a list of all the spies in two oh. entire provinces, which is two states. And a double a double irony is that the very CIA who told us liquidate with extreme prejudice and threw us under the bus was given that list to liquidate with extreme prejudice. They had to get rid of them. Yeah. It was kind of a irony that the they The double deserved. irony, as you said, well yeah. stated. Yeah, and, and the other things that were in the list, there was the money, the list of spies, um, there was, um, uh, he was uh, on, on his way to, uh, to discipline because uh, 50 uh, NVA soldiers shot themselves in the legs so they wouldn't have to fight at the siege at Ben Het. So he was on his way to administer discipline. Norman Doney sent me a, a newspaper clipping from Stars and Stripes in, in the hospital 
in Japan, and, and the Stars and Stripes said, informed sources, Contum province indicate, and you know, the, the whole thing. And it was a big arrow. He says, that was you, you know, <laughs> pointing to uh, uh, you know, un, unnamed sources. And uh, he was also giving awards. There were uh, two underground factories in an underground field hospital in the tunnel systems underground. And, uh, At um, Ben Head? Um, someplace in, in, the, in the interior, you know. Okay, right. Yeah, hidden. Uh, but, of course, this guy, if he's going to give these awards, he has to know how to find them. So the coordinates were there. And, of course, the B-52s went, went to, to work on that. Well, so you should back that stuff. tape up, too, a little bit. Yeah. Could the B-52s, wasn't that a separate mission with you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a separate mission. And that was timely. That was uh, significant. It's a typical Special Forces SOG mission. Well, set the frame, the time frame then. This is before yeah. this mission where before the AK round removes your... You can't flip anybody off with your right hand. No, no. Can't pick my nose either. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. this mission with the B-52 is significant in its own way, which is another, Story. just another day in SOG. Yeah, yeah. But And it was really significant. It really was. And the mission was... This, so this is before this mission. Mm-hmm. And your mission was to find, or because Ben Het was under siege, right? They were getting hammered by artillery, yeah. And big, the artillery was in Laos, big time, yes. But it had enough firepower to get to the Ben Het camp, which was near the Laotian border. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to figure out where this artillery was. So RT Florida is called yet again. Right. On this mission, Norm was the one zero. Right. Okay. Because right. uh, Ken had been on R and R or something. He was out of country. Mm-hmm. So right. Norm's the one zero. You're on the team with him, and your mission is to find this artillery that's hammering Ben Het. Mm-hmm. So you're on the ground. Take it from there. Okay. Um, we were um, just doing the typical thing. Enemy activity all over the place. You know, we had to go slow and all that stuff. And as we were maneuvering, we were crossing kind of a trail system. And uh, I was staying in the back next to Ba, the tail gunner, because he has to cover the trail, and I'm going to be watching him and all that. Right. And just as I'm going through, I see this long thing I thought was a black snake at first, and I look closer, and it's a heavy cable wire. Like uh, coaxial cable? Yeah, uh, uh, telephone and stuff yeah. like but thick, you know, big stuff. And I, I, I got Donnie's attention. I went, you know, and, and he looked back, and I signaled, come. And I pointed down there. I says, Cable, I says, we're next to a headquarters. You know, someplace in those bushes, there's uh, enemy headquarters around there. And uh, so we got the team together in a, a little spot. And Donnie and I and one of my Chinese mercenaries named Chin, who always wore um, um, a, a North Korean Chinese hat with a red star on it. And he was the point man. <clears throat> The, th- the three of us went uh, looking, oh, and as I'm seeing this cable, um, I'm hearing something, and I, I'm not sure I'm hearing it, but I listen, I listen, and I, and I said, Norm, I, I said, that's artillery. I'm listening, you know, like, am I really hearing this? I'm listening, and yeah, that's artillery I'm hearing. I said, I bet you that's what's hitting Ben Hit. So anyway, Norm and I and, and my Chinese guy, we, we start sneaking over, and we worked our belly and stuff. We crossed uh, the big highway and uh, worked uh, our way along a river and all that stuff. And uh, the, the booming is getting louder. And I'm looking and looking and looking. Can't see a thing. And then I start looking. And all of a sudden, I can hear it again. But I can see the leaves of the trees. 
And I said, that's it right there. And we start looking closer, get closer. And sure enough, it's, it's a huge battery of artillery. And then when you look closer, you can see the road system bringing trucks and ammunition there. Whoa. So uh, I, I said, let's get the coordinates <clears throat> of this thing. And so we looked at one direction, there's a steep cliff. We look another direction, there's a bend in a river. And, and then we look in the map and we say, that's it, exactly. We can coordinate it with the, with the map. And then we make our way back uh, to where the rest of the guys are, and we call. Uh, we say, we have found, uh, we believe, the artillery hitting Ben Het, and they were getting hammered. Uh, ben Het was, uh, that's a separate story, but um, right. uh, it was like the, thir the third perspective of Dien Ben Phu. Well, you could, I mean, it's okay. This is why we're here, because this is history. Yeah. And when the Battle of Ben Het was going on, I remember reading about it in Stars and Stripes, the local papers. Yeah portrayed but they never portrayed it in the way you're talking because yeah. the the major battles for that history point may of 1954 dnbn Fu fell yeah. after the north vietnamese army and and other indigenous troops there forced the french out the french yep. surrendered after coming back as a colonial power yeah they're ousted yep and from that they took that history, and when it came to the Vietnam War, by the time Americans are involved, Quezon, yep. Ben Het later, yep. were like, they were, these were battle pieces that they wanted to replicate what they had done at Dien Bien Phu. Hammer, maximum firepower, enemy troops into, in this case, uh, the Quezon was Marines, and they forget that FOB3 was there from we Mackie Saad. We were there first. Indeed in the village and then later joined went into the compound even though they had barbed wire between the marines and sog personnel because they didn't like our little people <laughs> <laughs> and then there's ben het which again this wanted to be a field piece to come in take it and to be able to defeat america on the battleground and the key element was the artillery being hit and your guys are there Take it from there. What yeah. happened these, next? These three outposts, and even to back up a second, sure, these three outposts were significant in a very large measure. To, uh, the French fighting the, the Viet Minh and the you know the communists, uh, the French had superior firepower and everything else in every regard, air force, everything, and so the only way you could fight a, a superior fire firepower was not to have conventional fighting, but guerrilla warfare. But finally, they got to the place uh, where they, they thought, General Yap, that they could beat the French. And the French thought, well, this, we finally got them into conventional battle. Well, what happened behind all the scenes when General Yap was surrounding and fighting the French was America was in the, the Korean War. And they were the France was begging the United States to not fight, sign the armistice. Was it 54? Yes, that sir. please do not sign the armistice and end the war because it ties down 2 million Chinese in Korea. And the United States didn't have a lot of love for the French, so they signed the armistice, and 2 million French, or Chinese made their way over to Dien Ben Phu, and they were the ones who were pulling these cannons and, and bombarding the French there. So they had set-piece battle, and actually a conventional unit, France, lost. Well, the next one, General Yap, the same one, just said, well, we're going to do the same thing, and we're going to do it at... Um, uh, Quezon? Quezon. And they, they this did is this January 16th. 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The 8th, yeah. February 68 yeah. into March. Yes, yeah. sir. And so they did the massive B-52 strikes and all that stuff. When that fizzled a little bit, the third one was Ben Het. It was a Special Forces A, a camp, and um, they thought they would try it now. We're strong enough. We're close enough to the Cambodian border and, and Laotian border. We have enough forces. We can do this. So on the opening day of the battle at Ben Het, they attacked with 10 tanks. And, and of course, intelligence people said they have no tanks. Well, they attacked with 10 tanks and, and several regiments of people, and the battle began. And the, the French were getting, or not the French, the Americans in special forces there, we were getting hammered with artillery uh, hundreds of rounds a day. And uh, But the thing was, is we were doing uh, arc-like strikes and everything else, and uh, uh, we couldn't seem to put down the artillery. So when we got on our mission and we found that artillery, um, we, we went, went back to our radios, got our little circle, and uh, we called them. We said, we found the artillery that's hitting Ben Het, and these are the coordinates. And our next instructions were to get to the closest LZ as fast as you can for an extraction. And I didn't know exactly what the point was, but uh, Norm Doney got us going. We went to the closest extraction, and waited for an exfiltration. Well, simultaneous to us, the two core Mike Force, and you know Doc uh, Paget was oh, a yeah. part of that. Sure. Well, anyway, um, they uh, on the basis of what was going to happen, they told the Mike Force get seven clicks south as fast as you can go, <laughs> which is four miles away, and yeah. it says you make your way as fast as you can. So the two core Mike Force, who uh, were actually engaged some NVA went four miles south as fast as they could go. We were exfiltrated out by helicopter, and uh, but you couldn't exfiltrate a company of people the same way that quickly. So they were said, go, go seven clicks, four miles south, get on the ground as fast as you can. And the United States diverted a massive B-52 strike on the site. And I heard someone say 100 B-52s, I don't know. But I didn't know there were that many. But they said massive amounts. Yeah, and they, they slammed bombs. it. Yeah, talking to Doc Paget later on, he's. I said, "What was it like 
to be four miles away from that site. Of course, we were pulled out of there. Yeah, yeah. And and he says it would. He says God help you. He said you couldn't stand. You know, wow. and and that was the day. That was called an arc, like the B fifty two strikes. Yes. And the, in, anybody on the ground couldn't hear the aircraft. The only time you knew you were there was when the rounds impacted on mm-hmm. the ground. And that was the day wow. the siege ended. That day. Really? That was the very day the siege at Den- Ben had ended. Whoa. I forgot you know, that little yeah, tidbit. And it's, it's like we're doing a typical recon <laughs> mission, but the significance of what you learn, you know, oh, strategic yeah. versus battle intelligence, you know. But, okay, I'll, and I want to take a little sidebar here because uh, into the into the personality of Dale Hansen, the first, <laughs> the one, the only, mm-hmm. because um, afterwards you're at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And you have this moment in time and where the doctors are coming yeah. in and they're evaluating things. And getting back to this marvelous book, um, Born Twice by Dale Hansen, um, you're, ta- you're writing about the doctors. They're talking about your hand. Like I'm not there. Yeah. So they, <laughs> So you write, they talked over the top of me as if I were not there. The younger had a marker and he traced it along the back of my hand along the middle bone of my hand. See, he said with a measure of excitement to the older doctor, we could remove that metacarpal and suture the hand together and no one would notice the missing finger. What? You exclaimed. (laughs) (laughs) He finally noticed that a person was attached to the hand. Yes, he said. Here he retraced the line down to the center of the back of my hand. We will remove that bone and close up the hand. And before he could continue with the conquest of my hand, I said, and give me a woman's hand, you would take out a perfectly sound bone of a perfectly healthy hand, and you would proceed from a bad finger to a ruined hand also? No, you will not. We decide what is best for you, he said, with the emphasis on we. Actually, We are talking about my hand, I said, emphasizing my. It belongs to me. Soldier, you are the property of the United States government. You do not get to decide. Let me make it clear. You will not touch my hand. You didn't say you will not touch my fucking hand? You just cleaned it up for the book? I never swear. You never swear? Is that a fucking fact? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Uh, so we go on here. Uh, the younger surgeon glanced over at the other with a look that communicated to him, explained to this ignorant lout, and he short-stepped out of the room. When he left, the older doctor said, it will be up to us to decide, not you. Then let me make it clear to you, if you touch my hand, I will kill you. The major, the doctor, stepped back. Fury fogged his eyes and he spit out the words, Soldier, I will have you court martial for this. You cannot threaten a superior officer. You will be on charges. Major, I did not stutter. If you touch my hand, I will kill you. I am a crazed green beret who has just come out of the field and has taken whatever meds you have given me. What do you think I will do? The major glared at me. If he were a bull, steam would have come out of his nose and ears. 
<laughs> Without another word, he turned and left the room. The next morning, on their orders, I was on a plane for Saigon, far removed from the two doctors, and I was scheduled for the next jet to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Got rid of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but that also, I, I just think that captures a little flair of your personality there, mm-hmm. that that uh, your time in growing up in Minnesota, which at this point in time, um, how did this whole illustrious career, what brought you to C&C? And um, again, this book, there's another um, aspect. There's really two stories in this book. You growing up in Minnesota, which is rich in detail, and then your your time in combat in SOG with, with this mission and a few others that we'll get into a little later. Yeah. And um, so take us back. You're, you grew up where in Minnesota? I can't even say the name. Oh, International Falls. No, no but, but, there's, but there's born a little city. Born in Warroad is where I was there born. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I wrote the book, uh, my my experience reading other books you know, on, on the wars and stuff all the way back to World War II and others is that we start when they got enlisted and, and, and so forth and you right. go to war memoir. I wanted to put a, a person in that uniform. And so this time I said, I'm going to write literature and I want to make sure when that Green Beret goes overseas that there's a human being in it with character and vision and thoughts and, and so forth. And... um so I, I made it biographical for about 60 pages to show who I was, the person that actually decided to go. And uh, I was a born-again Christian. I became a Christian when I was five. Um, and I, I would read the Bible and I studied. The Judeo-Christian values are who I am. I, sure. It's how I make my decisions and everything. Went to school, uh, college to be a pastor. And I was there at the, the last time. From the beginning of the war, I, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a patriot, and I'm anti-communist, I'm virulently anti-communist. I guess I'm also anti-doctor, huh? um, <laughs> anti-surgeons anyway. Huh? Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> or at least surgeons that don't approach options with an open mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had an open mind. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, uh, when I was in, in, in college with a 4D classification, which is, better than students because they're ministerial student. They can't touch you. And uh, I hear him. I'm I'm reading all the, the newspaper clippings and all that stuff about the war. And I, it's like, I belong there. You know, I'm a citizen. I'm an American. I'm anti-war. And more than everything, I'm prepared to die. And uh, at that time, I, I was extremely good, good shape, health. And uh, I had a black belt and I spoke a couple languages. And and I said, I, uh, if I'm going to quit college with a year to go, almost done, I'm going to join for the best. And I'm going to you know, join Special Forces. So when I enlisted, it was with the option of trying. And um, uh, so I, um, uh, I enlisted, and I, I wanted it in black and white. I, I get to try, at least. Uh, I went to uh, basic and jump school, and then... Uh, uh, before job school, uh, AIT was uh, Camp Crockett. I don't know if you know about that, Camp Crockett. No. Camp Crockett was a secret um, AIT, uh, Advanced Infantry Training School, 10 miles in the woods outside of Fort Gordon. And it was really? se- it was secret. And uh, uh, they had a battalion at a time. And uh, the funding for it came from excess funds out of Congress. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it was secret. Nobody knew it existed, but it was to train people to go into the airborne units and so forth. And the cadre were sergeants that got um, uh, um, went to NCO school, uh, and um, the undergraduate would be a staff sergeant. The rest of them would be buck sergeants. They were NCO school. Before I even got through jump school, every one of those were killed uh, in Vietnam. Um, they, they all went 173rd Airborne. 600 of us took the test for special forces there in that uh, those Quonset hut uh, training area, and uh, only three of us passed. Really? Yeah, yeah it, it was fairly hard <coughs> uh, testing, of course. Oh, yeah. So anyway, went went through jump school, and I, I made undergraduate from basic and AIT, and then my rank was frozen for the next year because I didn't have a parent unit. But then it went through uh, 11F school. And it's interesting, too, uh, because uh, 11F operations and intelligence are the team leaders. And um, you had to be for an For traditional e- A team. Yeah. Uh, right. And um, <clears throat> you had to be an E7 with at least five years in, or they wouldn't even consider you to, to do it. Well, uh, for a SOG, uh, they were having casualties. We were having 100% casualties every year. So we, uh, we finished. Just for our listening audience. The casualties, when they say casualties, that means killed in action, wounded in action, like in your case, mm. and you're you're no longer able to participate. So you're part of that casualty as well as missing in action. And today, uh, we are in 2023, February, there are 1,581 Americans still listed as missing in action in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War, which includes... 50 Green Berets mm-hmm. from Laos and Cambodia from the Secret War are part of that 1,581 who are still, quote, listed as missing in action, bodies not recovered. Mm-hmm. And then we have at least the Special Operations Association working in conjunction with the DPAA and DIA have confirmed at least 83 aviators from the Army, Marine Corps, and the Air Force that all are listed as missing in action or presumed killed in action supporting our teams on the ground, whether hatchet force or like in your case that day, you had everything. You had F-4 Phantom jets, Marine Corps gunships, uh, regular conventional gunships, and SPADs, our beloved A-1 Sky Raiders. So uh, just that little yeah. sidebar, but yeah. go on from there, please. Yeah. They, uh, and then we, uh, I want to get into that intel yeah. briefing from your book. You, we got some details here that are additionally mind-boggling. But first, tell yeah. us about how you get in yeah, from and, your days in the hinterlands of Minnesota yeah. to the jungles of South Vietnam. Yeah. I, 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 I should say, too, I was shot when I was a kid, too. Well, so yeah, I, well I, I please managed tell to, us about that. Yeah, I managed to get that You're driving down it. Well, you st- <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, I, was, yeah, I was 13 years old and um, out in a farm country in Minnesota, and uh, uh, my, my brother and I and my, my younger cousin uh, we're going to do a drive for deer for my uncles right. who were on the other side of the farm country and stuff. And uh, it was absolutely cold, brutal in northern Minnesota. When, uh, just awful. Uh, anyway, um, they uh, were going to walk around the other side of the, the trees. And then my, my the three of us young kids would um, walk through with our rifles and see if we could scare deer to the other side. And uh, anyway, we were freezing to death. And I looked at my uncle's car, and I said, well, let's go for a spin. It's warm in his car still. 
And so I took my 30-30 rifle and I opened the action, the lever action, set it across the car seat and um, got in uh, uh, the car. And my my cousin uh, uh, saw that the rifle was there with the action open. Was well, that's not right? And he shut the action, which put a, a round in the chamber with a hammer back and ready to go. <sighs> and so anyway, I uh, my brother wouldn't get in the car. He didn't think it was right for me to swipe my uncle's car, you know. So <laughs> my cousin and I took off, and it was just frozen. All the boom, boom, boom going across the ruts in the field and yeah, yeah. over the railroad tracks. Got onto the highway, and the very last bump uh, hit a bump, and it went off, and it went through my hip uh, and come up my tailbone uh, and, and a quarter inch from being paralyzed the rest of my life. But my um, when that bullet went through me, um, it, uh, the, the shock uh, stiffened my leg straight out like a board. Um, the leg on, that's on the gas pedal. On the gas pedal. And, I'm, and all cars back in those days could go 100 miles an hour. And my uncle's going to do 120, I'll tell you that. Because I, 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 my leg was just straight out on top of the gas pedal. I could not get it off. And I, uh, I, I was trying with both hands to pull my leg off because I'm going down this country road uh, so fast, you know, and everything's blurry. And um, uh, got to the place that I better do, start steering here too. And I had one arm on the a wheel and one yanking on my leg. Whoa. And then finally the, the adrenaline, the shock released. And I pulled my, uh, could pull it off with my leg. After you go on several miles yeah. down a country road over 100 miles an hour. Yeah. And, and um, my, my, my brother and my cousin ran through, through the trees and said, Dale's been shot, Dale's been shot. So the uncles, um, both of whom were, were wounded in World War II, they, they found me in the car and uh, I was across the wheel and, uh, and I was still awake and all that stuff, you know. But I was really messed up. So my uncle carried me around to the passenger side, and my uncle got in the back. No phones in those days either. No. And uh, um, uh, 120 miles to the next uh, hospital, which is Warroad, Minnesota, where I was born, and uh, got me in there. And I, I had to know that my parts worked. I guess that's like a Vietnam thing. So I got to the car, and he was about to carry me to the door, which, you know, they had a long line, you know, beautiful hospitals. That's a long line to walk. Yeah. And I uh, got out of the car, he started to carry me. I said, no, no, I have to walk. And I, I started walking, and I walked, and it was awful. And I got to the door, and, and that's when I collapsed. Yeah. You know, and he caught me and um, bled out and stuff like that. How and old were you? 13. It was the first of my shots, being being shot. Have you had your shots lately? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord, yeah. have mercy. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, all right. So, anyways, time. that's yeah. a hell of a story. That's, we had to get that sidebar in there. Yeah. Just life and growing up in uh, Minnesota in the middle of the winter. Yeah. So, through all this, at what point do you, Dale Hansen, the future preacher, say, "I want to get in the army"? And it, yeah. had you thought about special forces? What had impact? Yeah. You now, Robin, the uh, book, uh, Ballad of the Green Bray, and Robin Moore's book, sure. both were out about that time, and. and uh, it's quite clear that they were the best, yeah. you know. And, and so if coming out of college, I said, if I'm going to quit, it's not to be a, a line person or something. I'm going to be in the best or, or not. I'm not going to do this. And uh, so finally I got to this place. I said, you know, I'm hearing about 400 people a day dying in a war, and I mean, in a month or a week or whatever right. it was. Yeah, and, and I believe in the war. What am I doing sitting here in a classroom and so I went down and enlisted in February 
1968, I think it was. And um, uh, and if right not, at the height of the war during the Tet Offensive, exactly. And and uh, um, the, the truth of the matter is, is if they didn't send me there, I would have written a congressman, just the opposite of the draft dodgers. And that, and if that, they didn't have a plane, I would have paid my own way. You know, I am going to go and do my part. I, yeah. You know, and um, and so I did. And when I actually went overseas, um, uh, I should give you a statistic too. When I was about to go into 11F out of jump school, finished phase one. Uh, a major came out to our class. Uh, um, and um, and which class is this? At the end of uh, phase one? Yeah. There, okay. There was this third. is prior to doing your MOS training. Exactly. So this is a meeting with all the uh, candidates who want to be special forces. Right. There's an MOS determination. So right. the, uh, yeah. there's 11 Bravo, which is weapons. Yep. Charlie, which is uh, explosives. Delta, the medic, and then the F is Mech- the team leader, and then echoes the commo. Right. And uh, um, uh, 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 anyway, this major came out and, and addressed us, and he says uh, there's a top-secret program. Now, I recall him saying CNC. Uh, um, I was talking to Mike Buck, and he said, no, they never said CNC. They said top-secret program. But program, right. I, I certainly remember CNC at some point because I, everybody knew it what it was but they, it would be whispered you know it was yeah it was the thing you know but anyway he came out and he says we're looking for people who would volunteer for that and and I wasn't an E7 with five years in right. none of us were and, and so they were really getting desperate for 11 F's which is what the, the mindset for going in recon and SOG is nonetheless it's that sure and and he says that uh, you need to have a minimum of 130 IQ, which if you you volunteered for this program, it'd kind of make it that suspect, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> but you had to have a minimum of 130 <laughs> IQ, and you had to volunteer for, for uh, this school. Yeah, yeah. And when you finish, you're going to go directly to CNC or SOG, and um, except others remember this secret, this highly secret thing. And he says, at the end of three months, 85% of you will be dead. And so I went home and I said, well, you know, algebra, what number do you start with? Yeah. 85% of it four times to wind up with Dale Hansen at the end of it. And it's a little over 4,000 people to wind up with me at the end of a year if 85% die. Yeah, those numbers hold true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it's like, I'm not into suicide. <laughs> but I, I will take a risk for the right thing. Yeah. You know, and we all did. All Absolutely. Of us. Sure. We all did over and over. You you can get a guy maybe to go on one mission, but try to get him to go on two of them. You know, <laughs> is that right? We had a few one mission men. Yeah. They did it. And some cases, like in the case of Lynn Black, you had a American, the son of a, of a general, a leg army general, mm-hmm. who um, <clears throat> prayed during mm-hmm. the entire day on the ground, never fired a shot in anger. Mm. Prayed and uh, really, yeah. He chastised uh, the team members occasionally when they used the uh, the Lord's name in vain during their profanity. When they came up against ten thousand men from an NVA division, yeah. Or as compared to others, that like in my case, we had a, a guy on the team from the one seventy third fought like a stud. He stood tall in the field. He came back. And said, I can't do this. Yeah. And uh, you respect a man that says he can't. Yeah. yeah. So there was something just said we can't. Yeah. And they moved on. Yeah. yeah, without yeah. recrimination. Yeah, the, the the tension and all that stuff is oh yeah un- unbelievable. 
you know, the, the fight or flight adrenaline. Sure. Kind of a thing. Yeah. So anyway, get back. So, so now, so long story short, you make it because you yeah. got a better than 130 IQ. Yeah. Uh, and, and not in a suicide, but you're willing to go yeah. for a good mission. And, and our, our people graduated and uh, we were waiting for the orders. So, uh, um, DeLuca, um, I forgot his first name, and he's a friend too. He was right. our first sergeant. And he was talking to me. Someplace. You met him in training group. Yeah, during the jump on the on the air. You're on an aircraft. That's yeah, the first he, time you meet. Yeah, I talk about a guy who can tease you when you're scared to death. But uh, <laughs> but he says he says Dale, you get you having trouble. You want to go to to CNC now? He says call Mrs. A. You know, and of course James Bond. Well, books. this is all after you get your MOS training now. Yeah. So yeah. let's get back to your, okay. to your if you don't mind that thought. So you get in, you go through the training. The reason why I want to do that. You've got some other gem mm -hmm. in your book that I've read nowhere else. Mm -hmm. Or if I have, I forgot it because I'm getting old. But um, at one part, you're, you're in your training and there's an instructor who comes out. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> you're kind enough not to name him. And, oh, my name is Novi. Yeah, and he goes, this is, and he's speaking, is that like, would you say that's a German or a Danish accent? He was Czech. Czech, okay. Yeah. He writes, or he's, you, you write him as saying this, and again, I don't know how you captured this, but yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. He and, come, and, I, and I might add too, yeah. every instruction you ever see, he's got starch fatigues, he's strack, he looks perfect. Right. Jan Novi comes in, looks like he just got washed in his clothes, <laughs> and he comes in there shuffling in, you know, and it's like, this is not, he's not here for the photograph. Well, let me turn to your book, sir, <laughs> yes, because sir. the way you write this, um, it's another reason to get this book. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to cover all the stories today, but uh, when you get it, you read it, you'll love it. Um, my name is Novi. This is my third army. This special forces. I was in Europe and fought against the Nazis. Then the communists defeated the Nazis and took their turn brutalizing my country. So I fought against them. I joined the Americans because my country was destroyed and my family, they all perished. I joined the Green Berets to fight the communists. The world was plenty of communists to fight. I was in Korea on the east side of the Chosan Reservoir. When the Marines refused to help use U.S. regular army. Then I was in Central America and the Cubans. The sergeant moved to the podium and the light there set his deep wrinkles and scars in the shadows. I cannot remember how many times that I swam the Rhine on intelligence missions into Eastern Europe. One time I got captured. Twice I was shot, once in the river, and almost did not make it back across. He took a deep breath, as though he was deciding he should go on. Most of what you learned you will use in Europe, urban situations. I want to tell you something you need to know in Vietnam and the rest of Southeast Asia. Anyone see the James Bond movies and the communist group called Smurfs? 
That ain't just Hollywood. Smurfs is real. It exists. The name has changed. Call it KGB if you want. Smurfs is Russian and means death to spies. You think that is Europe, but I'm going to Asia. The Russians use cut out countries for deniability. You studied that already. One of these countries that they use in my country. There are 2,000 people in one place in Czechoslovakia just studying art of torture. Did you hear me? That is all they do. They practice on political prisoners and they sometimes get American prisoners. Castro sends some of his Cubans to torture American prisoners for practice. They do not care so much about the information that they do prisoners possess. They just enjoy torturing Americans. I never heard that before. Yeah, and and it's true. Yeah, you know, a smirch is real. And and um, I never he, heard that before. I mean, I've read all the books. Love yeah, James Bond ju- books. Yeah, just like Odessa is real. Yes. Yeah. Um, Novi was he was a, a, a wonderful gentleman. Um, he, his fingernails were all gone. And I, Gone? I would, yeah, I would see him. They pulled out his fingernails. Um, he, he was tortured and all that kind of thing. And John Novi is one of those guys you wouldn't even notice other than the fact he doesn't look like he ironed his clothes. Right. And John Novi was one of those guys who, was, uh, uh, who, who fought against the uh, communism and so forth, suffered everything, and, and was just quietly there. And, and when I knew him, he, I saw him again after this in Vietnam. Really? He worked in the motor pool. What? He ran the motor pool. And then Jan Novi. At Contu? Yeah. And he was a friend. And sure. uh, I, I was into martial arts and nunchaku. I used to get his uh, carpenter to make me some nunchaku sticks. Oh, good nunchucks out of special yeah. hardwood? Exactly. Oh, man. One day, one day Novi, and this, these are the last times I saw him. One day, Novi and a guy, uh, Smith, and there's another guy, the guy that ran the, the, the mess hall. And the three of them were going to go to play, uh, play coup, you know, to buy some stuff, which was six miles down the road. And, and the three of them went in a Jeep, and I was visiting with them, talking to him, and uh, uh, talking. Uh, he lent me a book of poetry. And I'll even tell you the poem, because I, I, I was really nervous you know, on this thing. And he gave me a book of poems of war, wartime, people who wrote poems of war. And there was one of an Italian poem. It's only about two, three lines. And I memorized it right on the spot. It says, all night long, thrown against a buddy, slain with his gnashing teeth bared to the full moon. I was writing letters full of love. Never had I had life so dear. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. And, 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 and Novi gave me this book. And I was telling him, I says, I, I'm reading your book. I said, thank you for the book. And, and, and he says, well, don't, don't take my car- carpenter, too. You know, well, anyway, then they go down the road to, to play coup. And um, within two or three hours, I get a, get a, a call from somebody uh, in the base. He says, Dale, did you happen, hear what happened to Novi? And, and uh, the uh, NVA had ambushed him between Contum and play no. coup. Yes. And, and the boat was, uh, the, the thing was flipped over. Novi was, had a round across his uh, forehead. And he landed against the tree sitting up. 
but he was absolutely, totally paralyzed, stunned temporarily, but he was stunned, couldn't move. His eyes were open. You could see everything, couldn't move a muscle. And then Smith, uh, one guy was in the front seat, and he was shot right out. out of, and then the other one uh, was underneath the Jeep. And, and when he saw the NVA coming in their feet, he tried to pull his feet under, and they saw it, and they shot him underneath the Jeep. Well, they went over to Novi, the only the third person, and they were going to. Uh, they saw it, he, he was shot in the head and and uh, not moving a muscle. They said, "Well, he's dead." And one of the guys saw a ring on his hand, and he tried to take the ring off of Novi's hand, and uh, uh, they, they couldn't get the ring off. And the other NVA are saying, "Hurry, hurry, hurry!" Because you know the yeah. help is going to be coming, you know, down the road, I, and and he couldn't get the ring off. So he takes uh, Novi's K-bar knife and he starts sawing off Novi's finger and he chops off his finger and takes the the, the, the ring. And all the, the guys are saying, hurry, hurry. And, he, and he's looking, holding up the, the ring in the air and, and then he, and they finally he's satisfied and they take off into the jungle. And so I see Novi at, at the hospital there and uh, that was my last goodbye to Jan Novi. And uh, just a, a fine man beginning to end doesn't fit any of the stereotypes just a, a quiet man just like uh, what's the guy that sloan i think his name uh, after world war ii he wrote a book called the man in the gray flannel suit oh yeah yes yeah. and it was he was the <clears throat> the typical person in world war ii who you never noticed but he was always there and doing his thing well i think too uh i want to return just a little bit more to your book here because of this I I was jarred when I read this stuff because here he refers to, he turns us all back to why he was there as you and others are trained to be intelligence officers or the intelligent team member, the 11F on the Green mm -hmm. Beret team. And it, it brings it back to SOG. Mm -hmm. And we've heard other versions of this, but yours is so point on here. And... um he talked a little bit. I just want to get the flavor of him because he said, uh, again, he's in this discussion this, as a professor, not a professor, but an instructor to SF intelligence mm -hmm. people training. I want to tell you one more thing. We actually know where most of our American prisoners of war are. We know their names. We know if they are in a bamboo cage, half sunk in mud, and where in the jungle they are. See, this is all new to me. Mm -hmm. Most Americans are captured or in base camps areas in Vietnam. Some are kept in the tunnels under the country. Some prisoners are taken into Laos and Cambodia or even farther to visit our Cuban tormentors. Most of you people who go to SOG who get captured will be captured in Laos or Cambodia or North Vietnam. It is there that your journey will begin. You are valuable to them. A soldier who captures you can get a reward of enough money to live on for five years. They have a medal minted just for anyone who kills or captures someone from SOG. It is like our bronze star, our silver star, 
only it is just for those who kill or capture one of us. And when they capture you, our government will deny that they know you. His eyes scanned us, pausing at us individually, looking into our eyes. He continued, Our government has files on all our soldiers who have been captured. We have our assets on the ground and our spies in the sky. We know. He said, hitting the podium with his fist. On some of the files written in small letters in the top right-hand corner are the initials M.B. It means Moscow bound. They go to Czechoslovakia. You must prepare for this. He stood there with his head bowed with both of his fingers outstretched on the top of the stand and drummed the surface with his fingertips. But there was no tapping sound to penetrate the depths of the room. The soft velvet thumping. One more thing, and I am through. I have seen this in too many enemy wars. Someday, when they defeat them and demand our prisoners back, a dignitary in a suit will have a list of our prisoners that the communists have, and we know that they have them. They will call out the name of the prisoner, and they will check his name from the list. At the end, there will be many names that have no checks beside their names. Names of prisoners that we know that they have. The man with the government will not ask for those men. He will just fold up the paper with dignity, place it into his breast pocket, and walk away. With a loud sigh and without looking up at us, he slowly left the room. I thought of that sergeant and his broken body as a sack of treasure with his sorrow and sacrifice and wisdom. And that just goes on. And then, uh, what an amazing story. Mm. I never heard about the MB before. Yeah, Moscow bomb. Yes. Um, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I don't know how we knew, but we knew where everybody was. I don't know if our... Our satellite spy systems, you know, like SR-21 or whatever that was, you know, things like that, were more sophisticated than they ever let on. But we knew where everybody was. And um, it was almost like Jan Novi there was a prophet. Because I can get, and you know the name of the guy, that dignitary who had the list, and that was Kissinger. Right. And it was Operation Homecoming. But he's foreseeing what Kissinger did five years later. To the detail. And, 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 and uh, um, it's a historical record. Kissinger went over there, and there was a list of 1,200-some names. Right. That, that, and the NBA were going to release them. Now, now, this was the list of our, our people that we knew. Right. So as, as uh, they got released, their names would be called, and they would take them off the list. And and as Kissinger uh, and his aide were, were uh, going through that, uh, there were names that we didn't know that they had. Somehow we missed it, and there's about 400 of them that they had as prisoners that we probably thought were killed or AWOL or something. Right. And um, But there was a list of about 600 that we were absolutely certain that they had. 
and and we knew that they had them. And Kissinger, when he the list was finished, and he knew he didn't get all of his prisoners, he folded up that list and put it in his breast pocket, and he said to his aide, "Those are acceptable casualties for peace." In other words, they deliberately left our prisoners with the idea that, well, we'll have some political, formal uh, attitude of peace here. Right. And Because uh, um, they wanted the Paris Peace Accord to be, in fact, yeah. and and with Watergate going on at that time, 1973, they wanted something positive, something powerful. They brought the prisoners home, mm-hmm. and it was. It was a very powerful Mo- moment moving. in our history. Very moving. Absolutely. Yeah. Because in Trenton, yeah. we had a POW that we had supported the family for over two years. Yeah. When he came back, yeah. it was like... Holy smoly, here's this Captain Venanzi. And the Vananzi. irony of yeah. some of this is that um, you could ask, say, an NVA official under a polygraph, do you have any American prisoners? And, and we're thinking about Green Berets. They would say no, and they would pass the test because we're not, we weren't entitled to prisoner of war status under Geneva Convention because we were sterile. Right. We didn't have our nation. We didn't have dog tags. We didn't have anything. Yeah, this, any Americans that were on a SOG team, whether hatchet force or recon team, went across the fence into Laos, Cambodia, or North Vietnam, were shot, captured, killed. That gave our American government, we said earlier, like the Russians, plausible deniability. deniability. Right. And no. we were told to speak another language, not even like, I said, well, can I speak pig Latin? Because I'm still struggling with English. Yeah. That was my foreign language. Yeah, yeah. It, but I, it, um, I, I, to them, we weren't prisoners of war. We were war criminals. Right. Although they know, in, in fact, you know, we were not only soldiers, but the cream of the crop of the soldiers. But nonetheless, the technicality that we, for the up until what, uh, late 69, we were sterile, couldn't even have an American weapon, you know. And, we were carrying cars by 68. Down in FOB1, yeah. Mm-hmm. But still, even that, I mean, they were carrying, before that, we had our, our the Sten guns. Exactly. The, the, the uh, Swedish K. I had to carry it. That's Swedish what you carried K. first, yeah. yeah the open yeah. bolt Swedish yeah. K. Yeah. Lord have mercy. <laughs> but, you know, here's another thing. In your book, uh, you talked about the next phase of training. On Monday, you said you marked the next week of training. And... Your instructor was teaching on the methods the communists were using in the United States. And I think there's a okay. there's this little passage here. Uh, it's a little bit of a sidebar from your story, but it's also, I think, it's so apropos to what's happening today. It gives mm-hmm. us a little insight. And again, this is your class, 1968. The instructor who knows communism inside and out is talking to you. says, let me, getting back to your book, let me talk to you about the communist use of the fifth column. A fifth column refers to the efforts of any group of people to undermine a larger group from within. They may be likened to termites working inside a tree. On the outside, the tree looks healthy and strong, but the inside is rotten and ready to fall. The fifth column will use anything from music to marching against the war. Their activities might seem harmless and have merit on the outside, but they have a goal in mind. They want the destruction of America and to make it a communist state. For the next four hours, the the instructor exposed communist front organizations that work in America. Getting back to your book, Mm 
Take, for instance, music. Pretty innocent stuff, it would seem. But you take a hypnotic beat and their lyrics, get them into drugs and sex, and you have termites eating at the soul of our country. The sergeant began to recite the findings of the House Committee on Un-American, on Un-American Activities regarding various record companies and musicians and stated their goals. And you had read, you personally read the books, The Rhythm, Riots, Revolution, A Nation of Sheep, The Ugly Americans, Orwell's Animal Farm. And you also read the books, David Noble and Hargis and Schwartz regarding the Russian Pavlo's mind warfare and hypnotic music. The calmness we use any movement to weaken the country and drive a wedge through us. Does that sound familiar? Like science, something that could be read today. Yeah, yeah. The termites in our society. And then last but not least, he you passed on photographs. It says, take the race riots that are going on. Just as we are at war, the fifth column is orchestrating anti-war marches and riots and race riots. This is no coincidence. You know, to have somebody put it in that direct fashion. I remember mm-hmm. us getting general briefings, but nothing detailed like you had yeah. in your yeah. intelligence training. Yeah. Jarring. Yeah. And, and, and apropos. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We go to these top secret classes. Uh, the, the the building would be surrounded by an empty field, which is surrounded by barbed wire and patrolled by guards. And you go to the door, and there are guards at the door, and they will check your ID and your name, and they will guard the door. You go inside, you sign a roster and all this stuff. It's all top secret. Uh, no notes are taken and all this stuff, and, and uh, handouts are left, etc. Somehow I wound up with a couple of things. I have no idea how I got them out. But nonetheless, you know how that I, I'm up there with with uh, Biden and Trump. I guess there you go. You're there. Yeah. yeah. But um, oh God, without, the FBI's going to come and get you, man. Fifty years no, later, no kidding. Um, uh, Fan belt inspectors. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to not say a name, but the, let's just say a euphemistically, um, the most famous black hero in the United oh, States. Don't go. Won't down say that your road. name. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've got a picture of him in a communist. Uh, committee meeting yes and um, he was a member of more communist front organizations than any person in the United States 120 communist front organizations Uh, he was an alcoholic a womanizer and he headed the race stuff not because he he wanted racial equality but because he was a communist they wanted to divide America and that was his his motive. His number one affiliation is Communist Party, and that was one of the examples of how people tried to split up uh, our country. You know, and f- of course, Fifth Column was it Robin Moore wrote the, the Fifth Column? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, but the, of course, the imagery is yeah. being attacked from all sides, and then finally, you're attacked from the inside. Inside, yeah. yeah. Well, those those are lessons that are uh, significant. And important for today, even. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're we're at the about the two hour mark here, <laughs> and it's like I don't know. This time we just got here. By t- it, we did. Um, um, I just I don't want to go too far, but um, is, the book has other stories. There's mm-hmm. one at the end. Is there something else that you would like to go into to characterize? Because you you heal up, you go back. 
you you bounce back, mm-hmm. you come back, and you even uh, when you returned, the situation in Vietnam was much different. Yes, and you came back in seventy or seventy one was much different than what it was when you uh, were there and when you first arrived in at the end of sixty eight or sixty nine. Yeah, and uh, uh, when you came back. Somehow your buddy Mike Mike was still there, and of course, um, the uh, you explained to them. Well, first of all, when you returned, what was the time frame? What was the date or the month? What year is it? Seventy, mm, probably seventy. Let's see, sixty-nine. When I came back, the second tour was seventy, yes. and then the third tour would be seventy-one. Right. So in the book, you talk with Mike. Again, Mike Buckland, who you mm-hmm. had gone through training group with, when right. you get back, he's there. Yeah, he's glad to see no, you. Just about the only one left out of our class. Right. You know, everybody's gone dead. Either gone dead or MIA, WIA. Yeah. And uh, um, and so he briefed you. This is like as the Vietnamization is going on. Here is what's happening. He's talking to you. They are sending our American troops home and expecting the South Vietnamese to take it over. It is called Vietnamization. And you replied, I know about that. It's a big deal in the States now. Mike nodded. The 4th Infantry Division has been sent home. And and there are no conventional forces near us anymore, meaning contum at CCC. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he said, I, and you told us, well, I saw some 4th Infantry people coming in and he says, well, they're probably the last ones that are leaving. And the troop withdrawal has left the three provinces around us empty. And the North Vietnamese has taken them over. This is in South Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And this is a tactical situation. They've become sanctuaries and unmolested supply routes. The South Vietnamese have abandoned the area around us to the communists. Doing a local mission now is almost as dangerous as going over the fence on our old operations. He took a long drink. The people are not the same either. A lot of our SF people have become casualties and the big shots have sent them 75th Rangers as as replacements. It is not to knock their courage, but the fact is they're not trained as special forces and it shows. Then Mike looked at his feet. Dale, you and I have talked about this before. We would risk death to win against communism. But, I'm not sure that anyone is trying to win anymore. The VS run or get beat every time they go out there, and some of the new teams in the field hunker down and give Covey new coordinates every day, just as if they were moving. They get picked up at the same LZ they went in. Whoa. So while you're digesting all that, your thumb is picking up the habit of sliding around the coffee rim there, and you're going, um, and then you tell him, when I was home, everything in the news was anti-Vietnam War. The press doesn't report the news. It is a left-wing propaganda. This is 1969, mm-hmm. early 70. They give aid and comfort to the enemy. Walter Cronkite is still calling the Tet Offensive the biggest defeat of American forces ever. Never mind that the Viet Cong attacked over 100 targets in one night and lost every battle and lost 35,000 soldiers which all but destroyed the Viet Cong. Fact. Mm-hmm. Hard, cold fact. Underreported, misreported. <clears throat> and, and you write, I was on a roll venting. 
I heard one announcer on TV sneer, I mean sneer, and said, so if the Viet Cong lost 35,000 soldiers and were all but destroyed, tell us who was doing all the fighting. His voice was mocking and on disguised hatred for us fighting the war. It never occurred to him that the Viet Cong had been replaced by hardcore North Vietnamese regulars with modern equipment to include tanks and even MiGs and helicopters. Then you answered, We have a bunch of anti-war pro-communist senators such as Senators Church, Mansfield, and Fulbright and others who take our top secret missions and at the end of the day's session read them into the congressional record. That way, they are not really given the information directly to the enemy. They would say it is not their fault the communists read the official document and got the message. Just before I left, the newspapers showed a picture of a crowd marching against the war in Washington, D.C. The newspaper banner said that 10,000 people protested at the Capitol. But Carl McIntyre in his magazine showed that the picture was cropped to make it look like a big crowd. He showed a picture of the same group from a distance. It was only a few hundred. But the press still clung to the headline that there were thousands and that Americans were all against the war. So then uh, Mike responds, says, don't get me wrong. SOG is still fulfilling its mission as it always has. They are still the most professional skilled soldiers in the world. I just think it might be a good to look around for a while before you go back on the ground. That's his advice to you. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. And that was yeah. your return. Yeah. One of those things where you... Yeah, you have to quantify in your mind: Is this really worth the risk anymore? You know, I'm anti-communist as, as I ever was. Yeah. But uh, is is it worth the near certitude that you are going to be killed or wounded in that next year? You know, and which was the case. You know, a hundred percent casualties. You know, and then we would we come in and uh, we'd meet the the person in charge of us, and he'd say, "Well, uh, welcome to this coming year, and you're going to be either killed or wounded this year." You know, and it's just and it's the same briefing like be. like you had like deja vu all over again, huh? Yeah, yeah. So, this is upon your return to uh, to Contum. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is that your briefing that in, you got in the Trang when you volunteered or when you were back at uh, Contum and at CCC? Yeah, uh, in a train they didn't really talk about Contum. I mean, the CCC. Yeah. Or CNC in, in general. Um, they assigned you there, but it was kind of like it was secret enough. We're not going to talk about it now. You knew where you were going. You know, you, you talk to Mrs. Alexander and you say, uh, "Where's my orders, <laughs> Mrs. A?" You know. Oh yeah. 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 Sorry, Tell, uh, that, remind us who Mrs. A is. Yeah. Because Billy Alexander, who yeah. was in the Pentagon, yeah, and she was the one who in James Bond movies they had M, right, and and then S and and A. Q was it Q? Q invented stuff. Yeah. We had a cue. His he was Baker, right? Yes, and then M uh, was the the director. That'd be Colonel Rowe. Yes, you know, uh, uh, or more more exactly, it'd be the head of SOG. Right. And we then, had uh, five chief SOGs over the eight year Civil War. Yeah. Right. And, and then Bill, Mrs. Alexander gave the assignment. I think I mentioned in the book. I wanted to actually walk into her office and throw my beret like James Bond did and have it land on the hat rack with a <laughs> fifth flash sticking out. But it was only by telephone. But I'd call her, explain who I was, and I says, I'm speaking for my whole class that graduated, and where's our orders? 
you know, we really don't want to be uh, raking leaves here on right, Fort Bragg, right. you know. And um, and she said, well, uh, we really want to prioritize people who are wanting to go. And uh, I says, we do. And I said, we're waiting for orders. And she says, call me in a couple of days. And I called her and, hi, Dale. You know, she's a very personal lady. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to, um, oh, um, man, we were just talking about him uh, uh, being killed. Um, uh, first sergeant, you know, and that's a different story too. You know, being him, him murdered. Right. Um, um, he, he, I'd, I'd say uh, she's an old lady. I had her pictured like Miss Marple, <clears throat> and 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 uh, he said, no, she's blonde, a real looker, you know. And yeah. he says, uh, tell her um, Deluca. Yeah, he says tell her Deluca sent you. And boy, the next day I got my orders. <laughs> yeah, and all the guys. So we all flew over together on a plane. Yeah, she was she was a cool head. She was very attractive. Cause I went down there in uh, October of '69 to get out of Tenth Group. Yeah, uh-huh. and I went down in the morning, reported with the flowers and whatever wine she liked. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I drove all night, got down there, go into the Pentagon, they get it directly to her desk, gave her the stuff, requested to go back, explained why, went back to my car in the parking lot, slept, went back at four o'clock, and everything was ready to go. <laughs> cleared base and on Monday the MPs came in by that time I was en route to Vietnam <laughs> <laughs> oh cool oh yeah but anyway so DeLuca was also a major player in your life became a yes. good friend yes and um, incredible stories with him because of his intel and like one of these veteran SF people that young guys like us we came in we glammed on to them, and if we asked them good questions, they would give us rock-solid information. Right. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you want to go into to DeLuca, but— um, Why not? Can, yeah, we can he, talk a little yeah, about him, he, please. He, he was our first sergeant. He's a guy, a small guy, Italian. Look, I don't know what DeLuca, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's Italian. A guy who could uh, cuss you out, and, <laughs> and you knew he loved you at the same time. He had that knack of of being an NCO, a leader, who who you took everything because he, he it was for your good, and and Deluca was just a, a great guy. And, and um, I was in 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 Bangkok. Most special forces had their hangout, and it was the Opera Hotel, oh, yeah. small hotel, uh, and we all met there. And uh, we get a bad mission, and they say, "Well, we got a plane going." And, Go over there, you know, and yeah, a little yeah, and a couple, R&R. yeah, a couple of us were at, at, at a, a table and eating the kind of food that you couldn't get in Vietnam, you know, and uh, in walks Deluca, and he comes to our table. And he says, "Hey, you know," and, and I said, "Hey, how are you doing?" And we just shooting the breeze and just enjoying them. Because this is the same Deluca who you met when you're on yeah. a C one thirty, and he remembers jump, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, teasing me on that jump, yeah. the first one forty one. He says, you know, be careful jumping out too far because right. the, the Jada will burn your shoot off. Oh, great, <laughs> you know. So so he walks into the Opera Hotel, yeah, and yeah. he's just smiling, happy, and, and, and I, I, you know, shooting a breeze. What what have you been doing? And he says, well, my last assignment, I was putting limpet mines on Russian ships in Hanoi Harbor. Really? Yes. Yeah, I like, forgot that part of the story. Yeah. Putting, how, how do you do that? How do you orchestrate it and get it done? But that's what he was doing. Of course, he was small Italian looking. He could easily transform himself into an Oriental look with a little bit of modification, but putting limpet mines on Russian ships in Hanover oh. Harbor. 
And then he says, and then I went to Saigon, and my job is with SOG. And uh, his thing was <clears throat> the POW thing. And and, and then he, he started getting serious and, and sorrowful. He says, we know where all our people are. He says, we know exactly where we are. We know if they're in bamboo cages and half-sunken water, if they're, they're uh, t- tied to a post. He says, we know exactly where they're all at. A lot and of the same says, things that Novi said, told you exactly. about earlier. And he says, I don't know. A year earlier. Yeah. He says, I don't know why we don't get them. He says, we're leaving them there. It was almost a, pl- a political statement. It was like, maybe this is coming from higher than SOG. Maybe it's from the country team. You know, who knows? Or, anyway, or the, the State Department scumbag Sullivan who was there. Yeah. So so DeLuca, then he, he, he lowers his voice. I think Mike Buckland was there. Uh, uh, Boyd was there. And there's a couple other guys. We were at the table. And he lowers his voice. And he says, I'm actually AWOL. He says, I left Saigon. I'm AWOL. <laughs> he says, I cashed in all my money. I got all my chains. He says, I'm going to go get those POWs. And, and he says... Um, so he's going to go from there. And I talked to John Plaster about this. My timing was is that... And John Plaster, just for the record, is somebody highly respected. who had three tours of duty in SOG. He overlapped, yes. Ran recon, three, two and a half tours. And then his last tour, he flew Covey, which mm-hmm. was an outstanding Covey rider. Yeah. And saved, saved teams on the ground. Yeah. And, of course, you also had the experience of John purchasing... 30-round yeah. magazine, which in right. your case, which, you being the epitome which, of the reason why I need a 30-round. Yeah, this round. is the reason we needed them. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah. you were one of the people that he bought yeah. one magazine for, and you had yeah. All of us got together. But John Pla- That John yeah. Plaster, yeah. who left as a major, retired, and is now, yeah. uh, he's he, the grandfather of SOG authors, by yes. the way. He, he wrote uh, a cover letter, and we all signed it. We all put in $50 for one magazine. Yeah. And I, I don't know how many of us did it. We tried to get as many people as we could. And uh, and then I got wounded. I spent five months in convalescent and all that. Yeah, yeah. And when I got back, he says, "I got your magazine," <laughs> you know. And and I said, "So quick." And he says, "Well, he says I didn't go through the government, and I didn't go through coal. He says I went through a pi- private contractor, and I had thirty round magazines in ten days." Whoa. Yeah, and that's how we got. That's I forgot the, that part. Of the that story. is the invention of the thirty round magazine. Sure. Sixteen. Yeah. yeah, right there. And I says, I was, you know, I was the perfect reason we needed them. Oh. I, I, we talked about the uh, Tet, you know, oh, yeah. and the Viet Cong being destroyed. Their basic weapon was the SKS, five rounds stuck in that little uh, magazine well. Well, uh, when they and got by destroyed. The middle of, this is early 68. Yeah. And by the middle of 68, a lot more were carrying the AK 47s exactly. by then. Exactly. Because they were destroyed, essentially. They were replaced by the NVA, who had the uh, AKs. AKs which is a 30-round magazine. And which the media misreported as the Viet Cong farming in the day in the fields in the rice paddies. And then at night, they put on their black pajamas to be commie dogs. <laughs> but they were wrong. They were NVA. Yeah. So back to DeLuca. Yeah, please. Yeah, oh, says, yeah, no, yeah. I, I, have to say, I have to say that because I'll forget where I'm at. Yes. Uh, DeLuca says I'm AWOL. And he says, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to, uh, I know where some of them are. And he says, I, I'm going up north in northern Thailand, <clears throat> and um, I'm, I'm going to do whatever's necessary. Uh, hire somebody, uh, get the munitions I need, and we're going to go in and we're going to spring these uh, um, uh, uh, POWs. 
So anyway, uh, uh, we say goodbye and all that so kind of thing. This conversation is at FOB2 Contum CCC. No, it's it's in, in uh, the Opera Hotel in Bangkok. Okay, thank yeah, you. I just so, want to get that back on point. Yeah. So anyway, he says, "Okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm leaving in, in, in just a little while." So he leaves to go um, to do that. He's gonna go north. He's gonna uh, get the guns and whatever people he needs up north. Go across into Laos to where he knows there's POWs. Well, anyway, while we're still at the Opera Hotel, and I thought it was the same day, but uh, when I was mentioning John Plaster, he says, no, it had to be a couple of days later. Um, but he said, so, uh, someone came in and said, Dale, did you hear what happened to DeLuca? And I says, uh, I didn't want to spill beans like he's going north. Right. But what they were getting at is what happened after he went north. Sure. He said he, they, he was murdered. What? And, they, and they Yes. They found him in a ditch. He was shot more than 20 times. And the word immediately. So this isn't a Clinton suicide. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. This is this is communism. Yeah. Shh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, the immediate word that came out was that CIA killed him. Really. That was the immediate word that that went through everywhere, and it was like the people who were there, the people who were uh, you know close by, and all this stuff. They all reported the CIA killed him. They didn't want us to go get POWs. And um, very quickly, and, and John Plaster says, no, the, the word, that, that official word that's out was that he was killed by bandits because he had gold. So anyway, that's, that's him. Well, anyway, ever since then. How far else, outside of Bangkok was that? Well, it'd be in the northern part of Bangkok, so I, and I'm not <clears throat> that familiar with, with distance. It's probably 100, 200 miles north. Oh, that far north? Yeah, because... John Plaster said he would have had to take the train to go up there right. or a taxi okay. of some sort. So uh, he went up there, and I thought it was the same day, but it was a couple of days later uh, that he was murdered. They found him in a ditch, all shot to pieces. And, uh, and, and, they, and the goal was gone. And the goal was gone, yeah. CIA went and they had a party. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I never liked the CIA that much. But... They, um, it was interesting because in me, you know, from what DeLuca went through and then tying it in with Kissinger, uh, uh, saying, well, those are acceptable casualties. And then what we do after the war, because uh, uh, it was about 20 years ago, two generals and an admiral went into uh, Hawaii to where all the, uh, the uh, archives about our POWs, MIAs were, right. and they shredded it. They shredded all documentation. Where did we hear that from? Um, it was in several documents, uh, um, but that's the disappearance of the POW stuff. And then the second big thing where generals and admirals went in and destroyed all evidence was the evidence that SOG of what we did, and that disappeared, which is why you can't get an upgrade on a medal because all the documentation is gone. Yeah, and on top they, of that, I mean, at a, at a Special Operations Association reunion, Four or five, maybe six years ago, mm -hmm. a guy came up to me for Contum. Mm. He identified himself, gave me his name, and he says, I'm dying to talk to you because you've done these books. And he said, you know, I was one of the last guys to leave Contum as we were leaving. American? American, mm -hmm. USSF. And he said, my job was to destroy the records. I uh. spent days. They had so much stuff between the after-action reports, intel reports, that uh, S2 had built up, who knows? Yeah. And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll call you back. 
or here's my card. Please call me. I want to come back and do more on that. I never heard from again. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, mm-hmm. I should have just yeah, sat down. Of course, down. America has got this thing about not wanting and not trying to get our POWs back. And and you and I had a conversation about all the way back to World War Two. Oh know, yeah. I was telling about John Noble. And, and Please so talk about that a little bit because we, this is what we can head down the trail to close out on the POW issue, or POW-MIA issue, mm-hmm. because it's just something that's gnawed at anybody that was inside. Yeah. So many of our people are still, quote, like that 50 Green Berets that are still MIA today. Yeah. And it just doesn't, that doesn't play out right in my mind. Yeah. But anyways, when as I, you're saying before yeah, I interrupt you, about John 60, Noble. Yeah, about 19, thank you. <laughs> yeah. For keeping this old guy on his... <laughs> we help each yeah. other, bro. Yeah, it's still teamwork here. <laughs> yeah, I think this is about 1959, 59. Um, I think I was about sixth grade. I, I, it might be a little bit off. And um, for some reason, I hit it off with my science teacher, who was a, a hunter, a fisherman, and all this stuff, conservative. He was in uh, working out and stuff, too. And... Uh, uh, he said, that there's a speaker, uh, John Noble, and he's going to be speaking in the co- uh, Coliseum or auditorium in the school. And uh, so we went to hear him, and, and his, his story was fabulous. It's documented. I've read his books several times. Uh, if you look up John Noble, uh, I Was a Slave in Soviet Russia is one of them, and, and some other ones. But as he, as he, re- he recalled the story to me, uh, he is a German-American, American, like um, uh, just he's got relatives in Germany. And his family had a factory in, in, in Germany, someplace Berlin or something. So uh, he went over to, to look at the family factory. And as he went over there, uh, Hitler ha- had his people arrest him. And uh, they put him in a concentration camp and seized the factory. And uh, so he spent the entire World War II in a concentration camp. And so he, he was privy to uh, not so much uh, the Jewish thing where they, they were being um, uh, executed, but rather the you whole know, work, the working thing, yeah. you know. And so he spent the entire World War II there. He said when, when the, the Russians came in and, and beat Germany, you know, rather than freeing the prisoners that were in the jails and the prisons, the Germans simply took the, uh, I mean, the, the Russians simply took the German prisoners and made them Russian prisoners. So all the American POWs that the Germans had, the Russians put them in boxcars and brought them into the gulag in Siberia. And, and among those was John Noble, and, and he spent the entire war there. He had an, a phenomenal memory, like some people have, um, where he could he memorized the names and pertinent details of over 5,000 American GIs who were in, in the, the gulag and in, in working in the, the mines and stuff. And, and his books reflected those experiences. Somehow he met a diplomat that was coming into the north, the north part. Uh-huh. And he was from Sweden. And he gave him his personal information. My name is John Noble. I'm an American citizen. I'm a civilian. I've been here and, and, and so forth. And anyway, he got that. He says, could you somehow get it to the embassy or someone who can help me? And so finally, that information went all the way up to General Eisenhower. And General Eisenhower personally intervened, and John Noble was released from the gulag. 
And as he did so, he gave the names of over 5,000 American GIs that Russia still had, and they were technically our allies and never released and never did release ever. Well, we that kind of a thing continued. It did, continued in, in Korea. This is fifty nine. When I when I met right. him, yes, and it wow. happened in Korea where, where we left our POWs. Sure, there's still seven thousand POWs. Yeah, and, and we never got them back. We never tried very hard. France did the same thing, and and uh, uh, and then from Vietnam, the list that Kissinger uh, right. folded up. You know, where, where are they? Or or for that matter, Afghanistan. Oh my God, we left them. You know, as as soon as the, the news media doesn't sell advertising anymore, the story's gone, the public's memory forgets, you know. And we have a history of that. And we had our special forces people like John, uh, uh, Norm Doney and, and the, those guys tr- tried to get our POWs back. Norm worked for decades on yeah. after the war. And, and, and the, the official government, the United States government, had their own. And they seemed to, to put uh, something in the in the way of every chance that we had to get POWs on. And the one that was released finally was Garwood. And you all remember Garwood. Right, sure. Was a private in the Marine Corps. Marine Corps, right. Yes. And I'll give you two stories. Um, and Garwood was, uh, um, talk about eliminate with, with prejudice, how you destroy the, uh, his uh, reputation before he gets out. Garwood was classed as a deserter and all that stuff. Right. He was never, ever, to this date, he's never been interviewed for what he knows, what he has seen. Uh, and that's a typical thing. Uh, one more is Bob Howard. Robert Howard, the most decorated man in American history. Uh, Bob Howard, and I know about this this story, uh, Bob Howard uh, and, and two other guys were sent to try find POWs. They sent Fred them- Zabotowski in 83, but that's where Bo Greitz got involved with it, and then it got, uh, it was corrupted. Ah. Because they had, um, and this is Bob Brown talked a little bit about too. Huh. Bob Brown, a soldier of fortune, put money into an effort to get to those camps. Yeah. But Bo Greitz at that time had misled them. And there, in my mind, Inadvertently. they were there. Well, hard, hard I don't want to, we don't, I don't have hard documentation. Just generally say that Bo had misled and there are others that came back. I talked to Fred Zabotowski after that. Because Fred was one of the people that was there also, and he said that the um, effort was thwarted from internal politics and, and things that went wrong from both sides. And I, I forgot about Bob Howard being involved in that, but they, yeah. there were serious efforts. And then, of course, then by that time there was a movie or two that came out, yeah. Left Behind or whatever it was yeah. with uh, Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah, and one with uh, Hackman. Gene Hackman. Well, anyway, Bob Hart and the other two guys were sent, and the State Department, wherever they sent them, they were relatively certain there were no POWs, and that's how they did it. Well, anyway, Bob Howard and the guys are on a, on a hillside, and they got their spotting scopes and all that stuff. They count In one, Laos? Uh, I don't know if it's Laos or Cambodia, one of the two. Okay. I think Laos. And anyway, they're watching through the spotting scopes, and they count 26 American POWs. They're right there. What year is this? Uh, no, I can't tell. Probably you early eighties. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's when Fred was over there. Yeah, and, and anyway, he, he's, he's too many for him to handle. Twenty six POWs plus he'd have to take out the enemy, and so he's he needs help. So he calls back 
to Washington, D.C., wherever the sender was. He calls back and says, I have, uh, I don't know what code we use, soap so bubbles right. or round hats, whatever yeah. it was. I have 26 round hats and, and the enemy there, too much for me to handle, send in a Delta. And the answer that came back to him was liquidate the merchandise. What? Yes. And it, obviously he refused. The chopper came in. When did you hear this? Or uh, how? Or I don't know uh, where and how, but I, I, it was... You remember because it stuck. Oh, and more than one. And it was oh, absolutely true. And um, anyway, he comes back and they, uh, the State Department meets the helicopter and are in the process of arresting him as being a deserter. Yeah, and and all of a sudden somebody says, "Wait a minute, we got the most decorated man in American history. He's not exactly a deserter." And the other guy, uh, uh, one of the guys, uh, um, all of a sudden I forgot his name. He takes off. He says, "I'm not having this. This is, you know." He yeah. takes off on a run, and uh, I think when they finally lit down, it was close to uh, Bangkok because uh, that night he gets stabbed in an alley in Bangkok, you know, and uh, he lives through the stabbing though. And then I, I don't remember what happened to the third person. But anyway, that, that was kind of typical. Uh, there's another one with Frenchie Amason, was one of our SOAR meetings, that, that she was going to testify before Congress. And she was a POW in World War II. Right. Yeah. And uh, she was just so excited at the SOAR. She was going to testify, and maybe she can get something done. And uh, next thing we know, suicide in her hotel room. Uh, no. Not, not yeah. her. Yeah. And so this thing about POWs, I don't know what it is. It's it's not like like Russia, where Russia, when we freed our POWs and the Russian POWs, they went back to Russia. Stalin had them all executed because just even being in a prison where there were Americans was enough to taint them against communism. Right. It's not like that. But for some <laughs> reason, we don't yeah. want our POWs back. Hmm. Well... We have to we'll have to look at that a future uh, future <laughs> sawcast, but that's a point that's just uh, enraging. Yes, to hear that. Yeah, and uh, we worked on our small way trying to go through the government, and always like seems like it's mm -hmm. the roundabout way, and we never get direct answers and nothing yeah. like uh, that kind of information. We have to go back now and do a little more research after this. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, as we head down the closeout trail, you got another interview coming up. Mm -hmm. um, any last final closing thoughts as we close down here? I think this is it. And uh, uh, there was other missions. And again, uh, the book is outstanding. Born Twice by Dale Hansen. Recommended reading by one and all. Not only phenomenal, unbelievable war stories, but uh, it's outstanding writing. Even you made it fascinating what it was like to grow up in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, with that thought in mind, anything further? That's it. Um, so we wanted to, at this point, again, thank Jocko Willink Productions for making this production of Sawcast possible and in conjunction with Saw Chronicles. And we want to thank all the men and the women in our armed services who have fought and bled for the country. We want to thank our Border Patrol, law enforcement, first responders and uh, we encourage people like we tell you we were talking about John Plaster Sogcast number 10 and he's now up on uh, YouTube 
And our productions are first come out as audio podcasts on Spotify and Apple. And then we now have 13 of our first uh, interviews on Sodcast that are now on YouTube. Encourage you to share them. And um, we also want to thank the men and women who have sacrificed for the years in the past and for uh, heroes like Dale who have fought for our country. We also want to remember and salute the men and women who did not return from the war and for their families and for, their, for what they've gone through over the last 54 years. And also, again, we thank Jocko. You can go to his website, his books, and uh, my website is SOG Chronicles. We have our books, our other podcasts are all listed there. Thank you. God bless America. Till next time. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.